Welcome to this episode of Moments in Leadership. Don't skip ahead. I have a Marine Corps birthday story to share. And so to all of my plus 30 second skippers out there, at least give this a minute and a half and listen to some of this story. But real quick, I just want to take a quick second and personally thank the two new supporters to my supercast, Matt Tower at the Buy Me a Beer level and Andrew Loudon at the Hot Wash level. Thank you guys so much. Okay, so I was the guest of honor for RS Jacksonville, Florida's birthday ball last week. And as a quick orientation, there are 48 recruiting stations or RSs nationally. And those RSs, they have recruiting substations. They have these small one Marine permanent contact stations. They have recruiters at the military entrance processing stations or MEPs as we all know it and officer selection officer locations. Now those 48 RSs and their component RSSs, recruiting substations, they make up six different Marine Corps districts, each led by an 06 colonel. There are three districts per region, and those two regions are led by brigadier generals who report up to a major general who commands all of Marine Corps Recruiting Command, or MICRIC as it's called. So there's one major general, two brigadier generals, six colonels, 48 majors, each with their own senior enlisted advisors. I mean, it's big. I really didn't realize how big it was. Okay, so I want to give a couple shout outs here. First, I want to give a shout out to all the hardworking Marines in RS Jacksonville out there in those recruiting substations, those PCSs, the OSO offices, and the MEPs. But I do have a few specific RS Jacksonville Spartan shout outs to give. One is to the RS Jacksonville commanding officer, Major Rob Moore, for really working to maintain and more importantly, continue to work on building a great culture there in the RS. We all know culture always wins. And when you celebrate your men and women, you get great results. And I saw awards and recognition that far surpass anything I've seen in all of my time as a Marine. Second, Sergeant Major Jimmy Richard for making me feel like part of the Spartan family. And oh, congratulations on your next billet, by the way, Sergeant Major for Marine Barracks, Washington, D.C. 8th and I. I'm definitely looking forward to having a beer or five with you when you are at the staff NCO house next season and also getting you here on the podcast. A shout out to Gunnery Sergeant Luis Marin, who's the station commander for recruiting substation Melbourne and was the RS Jacksonville station commander of the year. That's a huge recognition. And I know it came with a lot of long hours, a lot of calls and a lot of hard work by all the RSS Marines that are in Melbourne, Florida. So congratulations to the Marines from RSS Brunswick for adopting me for the night and sharing their moonshine, their tequila and their stories with me. I had a significant headache the next day. So... <laughs> And finally, to Jay and Jessica Phillips, your generosity underwrote the cost of the celebration. And just as importantly, it provided childcare and babysitting for the evening, which allowed all the Marines and their spouses to enjoy the celebration without having to worry about carrying the cost for the evening. Jay and Jessica, Semper Fi, you are both the epitome of always faithful, and I am glad I got to spend time with you both. As I said, I never did recruiting duty, so I got a solid education on what good and hard work they are out there doing, and I want to share what I learned. So in fiscal year 2023, there was only one branch of the service that made its recruiting goal, the United States Marine Corps. And we didn't make it because we have the best barracks of all the services or the highest bonuses. We made it because every generation of Americans has within it a group of warriors who are willing to pick up the mantle that is the United States Marine Corps legacy. And that said, we're at a critical point in American history as we shift from the most recent conflicts in Iraq and Afghanistan to 
what I'll call the great power competition, along with these conflicts that we're not even imagining or thinking of right now that were bound to pop up. The Marine Corps has had continued success because of the willingness of Marines and all of us as Americans to keep our Marine Corps a strong and quality fighting force ready for whatever dynamic situations the future has in store. And you may have never asked yourself what you can actually do to contribute to the future of the Marine Corps, but here is how you can do it. One, if you're a junior Marine or an NCO out there in the fleet, you can try command recruiting or something called CDR, where you can come back to your hometown or or any town, I suppose, and try out recruiting. It's a try before you buy. CDR allows you to be an additional Marine Corps ambassador, and it exposes you to the recruiting command environment. The benefit to the recruiting station or the RS or the recruiting substation, the RSS, is that you know the territory and you probably know some of the men and women in that town. And when you show up with a yearbook and match it up against this list of people that the recruiters are trying to call, you can give them valuable insight about the person that they would never have otherwise. And that's immensely valuable in recruiting. Okay, two, if you're a reservist, you can do it also through something called Extended Active Duty or EAD Recruiter. In fact, I heard a story about a reservist who was drilling in the SMCR, so one week in a month, two weeks in the summer, who decided to try it out. They became a recruiter's aide and then were successful there, so they sent the Marine to Basic Recruiter Course, or BRC. After graduating from Basic Recruiter's Course, the Marine did two years of recruiting and then became an 8412 MOS career recruiter and stayed on active duty in his hometown and never left. Okay, three, if you're a teacher or an educator or close with someone who is, and you can pass this along, it's really helpful to the effort if you or they reach out to someone and somehow connect with the Marines in the recruiting station and ask how they can be supported in the school environment or offer an opportunity to come and do a class talk or invite them to an awards night at the high school or something like that. Additionally, you or they should really consider accepting an invitation to participate in something called an educator's workshop or EWS. This is essentially an all expense paid trip to go to Marine Corps recruit depot and experience a quick taste of what it's like to arrive on the bus, stand on those yellow footprints as drill instructors replicate what is essentially the first five minutes of the transformation that all Marines go through. And then after that, you get to take a breath and collect yourself and go through the rest of the day seeing the training and getting to really understand what becoming a Marine is all about. And don't worry, I don't think they make you run the obstacle course or anything, but you'll get a taste of what it's all about. And it's something that you'll never forget in in a good way. Okay, if you're a lieutenant or a junior officer and you're not really sure if you're going to stay in or what you're going to do with a B-billet, but you're looking for something that could keep you stateside for three years, but still be in a dynamic role that supports the FMF, you should call your monitor or go to your battalion XO and see if your XO has any friends in their network and take some initiative and see what's available in Marine Corps Recruiting Command or MICRIC. You may find something or a location that really appeals to you. I'm just suggesting that you research it and check it out. Okay, so with that, this episode is with Sergeant Major Chris Rivera with the 3rd Littoral Logistics Battalion. Sergeant Major Rivera enlisted in the Marine Corps in July of 2000 and attended recruit training at MCRD Paris Island and then went on to become a motor transport and logistic vehicle system operator in 2nd Transportation Support Battalion, the old 2nd FSSG in Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. 
As a corporal, he deployed to Iraq in support of Operation Iraqi Freedom 1 and Operation Iraqi Freedom 2 TAC 2, which included Operation Phantom Fury. As a sergeant, he was attached to 1st Battalion 3rd Marines and deployed to Afghanistan in support of operations in the Korangal Valley. He was selected as the Non-Commissioned Officer of the Year for 3MEF in 2007 and requested assignment to drill instructor school. He was promoted to Staff Sergeant and then served as a drill instructor, a senior drill instructor, and chief drill instructor with the 3rd Recruit Training Battalion in MCRD Paris Island. And he was subsequently selected to become an instructor at the Drill Instructor School, where he was meritoriously promoted to the rank of Gunnery Sergeant. After completing a successful tour as a drill instructor, he then attached to 2nd Battalion, 7th Marines, where he was deployed to Sangin, Helmand Province in Afghanistan. Then, 1st Battalion, 12th Marines, Headquarters Battery at Marine Corps Base Kaneohe Bay, Hawaii, he was selected to the rank of 1st Sergeant and executed orders to 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, where he did a unit deployment program before Officer Candidate School, Quantico, Virginia, where he had the unique experience of training, educating, screening, and evaluating Marine Officer Candidates. Sergeant Major Rivera was promoted to his current rank in November of 2019 and was then assigned to 1st Battalion, 3rd Marine Regiment, where he again did a UDP, and then he went on to participate in the Infantry Battalion 2030 or IBX 30 construct in support of Force Design 2030, until 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines was then redesignated to the 3rd Littoral Combat Team. In March of 2023, Sergeant Major Rivera was assigned to the 3rd Littoral Logistics Battalion, where he currently serves. Sergeant Major Rivera's personal awards include the Navy Marine Corps Accommodation Medal with one silver star, two gold stars, and a combat V. So for those of you counting, that's eight Navy comms. He has three Navy Marine Corps Achievement Medals and a combat action ribbon with a gold star. And for my lawyer and JAG friends out there, pursuant to JER 2 TAC 207 parens 5 CFR 3601.08 N parens, it should be noted that Sergeant Major Rivera's views are 100% his own and don't necessarily represent the views of the DOD, the Department of the Navy, or the United States Marine Corps. And with that, welcome Sergeant Major Chris Rivera. Thanks for coming on the pod. Really appreciate this. I know we have a mutual friend in common, and we're going to talk about that for a second, but was wondering if you could just give us a quick orientation on where you are, because you have a pretty unique situation going on right now, and not many of the listeners really have the sort of experience that you do. So give us a quick orientation of where you are. Yes, Dave. Thank you. Thank you for having me on this podcast. Uh, you're right. I do have a, a unique position. Uh, so I, I was fortunate enough to serve with 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines, which later became the Infantry Battalion 2030 experimentation. And then Fast forward to now to the the third littoral combat team. Served with them for about thirty nine months. So I had some a great experience with them. You know, was fortunate enough to deploy with them a couple of times, do the workup uh, with three great commanders. And then about five months ago, I, I moved over to the third littoral logistics battalion, which also falls under the third marine littoral regiment. So I was fortunate enough to get experience now dealing with some of the enablers that assist. The MLR with the logistics, but yes, uh, fortunate enough to have that opportunity. Yeah, I'll definitely want to dive into some of the leadership experiences and lessons learned and those formative moments in transitioning an entire battalion to a whole new thing. I, I just find that fascinating. I think listeners will too, but we'll definitely come to that. But you know how I like to start these things out, right? I like to start out with, uh, hey, tell me about the young Lance Corporal Rivera right? like or, or even PFC Rivera or something like that. But when you and I were kind of chatting to get this whole thing going, it's also worth mentioning too that 
the sergeant major that came in that you did a relief and appointment with is Don Reynolds, who's who's one of the more popular episodes on this podcast. So you you two are, have connected, and and he has taken your previous role in the littoral combat teams. So that's kind of interesting. So best wishes to him. I hope he hears this episode too. But getting back to PFC Lance Corporal Rivera, as we were talking, you told me a really interesting story about when you were Lance Corporal in your first platoon. I'm wondering if you could just retell that for the listeners. When I uh, initially got to the fleet, uh, the Fleet Marine Force, I, I went to 2nd Transportation Support Battalion uh, where I experienced my first fleet experience. You know, I had a, an, an impression that the Marine Corps was something else. So initially just kind of backtracking as I made my way into the Marine Corps, I didn't really know what the Marine Corps was. I just knew that they were the, the elite and I wanted to be part of that. I didn't want another service. I wanted, I wanted it to be hard. And I wanted to associate myself with some with a with a service that was known for being hard. And so, as I made my way in, you know, let's fast forward through recruit training and through uh, you know some of the entry level pipeline. Made my way over to the fleet, and my first experience wasn't the most positive. Entered the fleet, showed up. We were part of a remain behind element while Marines were forward training at AP Hill. Uh, when those Marines returned, I learned that they weren't necessarily the best leadership. Before I found out that they were doing misconduct, they were actually doing other things that just didn't seem right and actually was very discouraging and also almost pushed me out of the Marine Corps. But uh, justice was served on a given day in, in the motor pool as uh, PMO and others showed up, arrested the platoon sergeant, some of our NCOs, our Lance Corporals, for some of the crimes that they committed. And what it left was a big gap in leadership. It left Lance Corporal Rivera stepping in front of a formation, and one of those things when you're when you're young and you're and you're, and you're in front of a formation, you know you've probably seen it where you get in front of the formation, you're at parade rest, and you're kind of holding everybody accountable, but you don't necessarily know how to do it, so you don't even look at everybody in the eye, and essentially it, it takes like a certain rep sets and rep, reps and sets to basically gain that confidence before you take over. So they fill in those gaps. With some of the NCOs and some staff NCO, and a staff NCO from other platoons, but that void you could feel it, and it definitely uh, I would say it definitely discouraged others from staying in. I think the thing that changed for me was at that at that early age I realized that people come and go in the Marine Corps. Often folks blame the Marine Corps, but it's, it's kind of like when they say, "Hey, the battalion did this, the the company did this." Well. Who in the company? What, you know, like, was it the building? Was it, was it, who was the person that did it? And as people come and go, the culture changes, your experience change, changes. And I think that is essentially what remotivated uh, Lance Copa Rivera to stay in and stay longer. I mean, I had jobs, line, uh, jobs lined up, just like every motivated corporal and sergeant claims to have a job lined up when they get out of the Marine Corps. I had the same thing, but two staff and CEOs and a lieutenant just, they they changed that for me. The ones that came in after everybody left. The the ones that the they, ones that came in after. They, I, I could tell you like I never I never seen a staff NCO quite the caliber. And I, I'll throw his name out there because he definitely deserves the credit. You know, Seth Cole, Teresa Cox, Kevin Meisner, uh, the two staff NCOs, Staff Sergeant Seth Cole, Gunnery Sergeant Teresa Cox, and then at the time second, then first lieutenant Kevin Meisner. Definitely led by example, something that I learned later through OCS, Ductus Example, Leadership by Example. They were there. They, they were at the point of friction, not afraid to you know, call a spade a spade. I'll give you an example. St back then, Stassar and Seth Cole, when I first picked up Corporal, 
He put an NCO sword in my hand and asked me to identify the parts of the NCO sword. I couldn't say one. He quickly identified all of them for me, and I made it a goal to know everything there was about the NCO sword to include the history. He showed me how to use it to include in, in ceremonies. It may seem like something minor, but that right there was something impactful for me. And I, I knew that he was the right leader to follow. And then Teresa Cox, who you know retired as a sergeant major, meritoriously promoted in combat. And, and one of those that, lucky for me, on my second combat deployment, I was able to serve under him. Well, temp loan to them to help with a security in an HA site or humanitarian aid site over in Joland Park in, in the city of Fallujah. I was so grateful that, to have that opportunity. I gave him everything I had, but he just... He just led from the front. He just, he was a professional, never cursed, just stellar performer, just somebody to emulate. I was truly proud to have that. And then First Lieutenant Kevin Meisner, who happened to be, I witnessed him do some things that the strongest people in Fallujah would not, would not be able to do. You know, we had the unique task of the dealing with the mortuary affairs during that, during that mission. He was there with us. He wasn't hiding in the background. He was there dealing with the same thing that we were dealing with until today, he still deals with it. Yeah, I respect those men and those men were essentially the house that built me. Well, that's a great way to give them a shout out. So good on them. But, so, but just so I get the story straight, they came in after the arrests and everything that you were talking about, right? So there was a period of time when Lance Corporal Rivera was underneath the, the leadership of these NCOs and staff NCOs and, and Marines that would eventually get arrested for for illegal activities, right? There, there was a period of time there, correct? There was a period of time. We witnessed things. You form a group when you come in. You know, sometimes it's the new joins that just kind of stay tight together. But for me, I kind of ventured out and, and sought a new group uh, just because, you know, some of the ones that you come up with aren't necessarily the ones in the right path. And I knew that I had to break away from them because they had bad habits. I wasn't much of a drinker. I wasn't much, of, I didn't smoke. I just wanted, to, I, I wanted a PT. I wanted to do other things. I ended up finding a, my own little group within that platoon. And if we were going to a unit function before we would get to the ugly or, you know, there was people drinking to the point where they weren't, you know, they could no longer hold themselves accountable. We separated from there. You know, we would take care of whoever we could take care because, you know, growing up, you, you have those that you have to kind of babysit and make sure that they make it back. For the most part, we stuck to our guns and we just made sure we did the right things and we didn't associate ourselves with them. For the misconduct, it was a surprise to a lot of us because we didn't know in depth how much they were doing. Uh, we just know that they, they, they were up to no good. And eventually they were removed from, the, from their positions, which created a void, but it also created uh, hope. It created hope for us. It sounds like it created an opportunity for you to step up and be a leader. What was that like? At first, I'll, I'll tell you, as a Lance Corporal stepping in a formation with a bunch of meat eaters, like I was very nervous. Obviously, it's not, it's not all myself. Like we, we did it collectively and, and I've made it a habit in every rank. I try to, you know, the relationship has never been, you work for me. It's like, work with me. And, you know, I'll bring people in to help kind of set that environment. You know, for example, as a first, I was doing the company first sergeant as a gunnery sergeant for about six months and I had a master guns and some mass sergeants in there and I had to get, I had to get the buy-in. But what I did was something I did as a Lance Corporal where I brought him in and I said, you know, I, I need your assistance. You, you're the most experienced here. I just need some help in getting it. And I wasn't necessarily the senior of the Lance Corporals either. I was just the one that stepped in front of the formation and wanted to see change. But it was very difficult, especially because, you know, as a Lance Corporal, you're not necessarily the most mature, but you learn. 
Were there NCOs there too? Were there other NCOs that didn't step up? So NCOs were were removed. So we had no NCOs left. So it was just Lance Corporals and below. Some of the NCOs, there was an NCO that was TAD that came back. He ended up coming in and taking over some parts. And then we had NCOs from other platoons that came over. They probably looked at us like we were rejects and we were we weren't trained properly. And then slowly but surely they 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 got to know us and they helped us out. Some led from the front some not so much. And you quickly learn who to follow. But we developed a, a relationship to the point where even NCOs, when they were wrong, something that I remember from one of my NCOs, he apologized when he did something wrong. I was baffled by the humility that that NCO possessed. You know, Looking back, I didn't think much of it then besides just respect for the individual. But now as a senior enlisted, I looked at it and I was like, wow, he, he actually was humble enough to come to us when he could have just pretended like nothing was wrong and just went on. He he actually came back and apologized. I give a lot of credit to to people like that 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 aren't afraid to admit when they're wrong. I'm going to jump ahead here because you just said something that really piqued my interest. But because I feel like sometimes human nature is, if you say you're sorry or you admit you're wrong, you're sort of admitting to a weakness. And and you know like that word just doesn't really exist in our Marine Corps lexicon or or, or lead, service level leadership lexicon. But uh, so I think people are reticent to want to stand up and admit they made a mistake in front of everybody and apologize for it. So now I want to fast forward. You're a sergeant major now. Do you still adopt that as a leadership technique? Like you're not infallible as a sergeant major, right? I'm sure you make mistakes. Have you found yourself still adopting that sort of humility and using that technique in, with the Marines? Dave, I still do. I still do. At the beginning, when I, when I started doing it uh, younger, I, I did feel like it was a weakness. I felt like I was giving up something of myself, you know, basically taking off a shield. But I, I notice a change in, in the response of the Marines. And till today, I still do it. Uh, matter of fact, the other day, you know, I made a mistake. I passed the wrong month, you know, when I was passing word for, for a date that we had to have something complete. And, you know, I told them I was going to, I was sorry. And I, and I told them that I would fix myself. And, you know, for me, like nobody's telling me to do burpees, but I did burpees just because I knew that I, I had to, you know, I had <laughs> to awesome. do it. I even recorded it just in case they asked me, even though none of them asked me. Yeah. But I still, till today, I still apologize if I waste anybody's time. I think as a leader, like, you can't be afraid to do that. You're human, you know, and you have to let them know that you're human. But if you pretend to be something else, they'll see through it and you'll have some that follow you, but not, not as many as you would hope. That's my belief. I subscribe to that theory. I, a couple times, I won't bother telling the stories, but there were times where I, where I messed up and my Marines saw it and I just, I just owned it. None of them ever came up to me and said, hey, great job owning it, sir. You know, but like, I suppose I just adopted that. I always kind of admitted when I was wrong. A couple of times I tried to bullshit my way out of things and people saw right through it. I mean, the Marines see through everything, you know. They do. There's no real hiding a mistake. Like you're probably just better off owning it. Now I'm going back to the Lance Corporal time. I think one of the hardest things to do in any organization, military or otherwise, is, is lead your peers. But you got thrust into that pretty quickly in your career by, you know, you said before you assumed the formation as a Lance Corporal. How did your Lance Corporal peer group react to you stepping up and taking charge? Was there some resistance to that? Were they like, oh, look at this guy. Who does he think he is? Absolutely. Like there was definitely some resistance, the snickering, the, the, the comments, uh, Lifer, Belfed, Motard, you know, they were all coming. As I was standing at parade rest, not making any eye, eye, eye contact. And then finally enough was enough. And I was like, you know, I'm facing them. I'm in charge of them. I'm passing word, but I'm in parade rest myself because I don't necessarily have the confidence. And then at some point, my arms just came back in front of me. Knife hands were there, you know, just getting sharpened. 
And then at that point, I started giving orders, not options, and, and Marines followed me. But it had we had to initiate that conversation to let some of my peers know, some of the stronger ones, that I need your help. I can't do it on my own. You know, I'm stepping here because no one else is. Like, give me a hand. And they did. They did. There were some that were confrontational. And I would say that sometimes uh, leading your peers, sometimes, uh, you know, even as staff and CEOs, I heard this from a, a now a warrant officer, a gunner. When he was getting promoted to gunny, he basically said that the rocker is not a hammock. It just means it's more responsibility. Don't use it as a, as a way to just hang out and just be lazy. You have to get more involved. You have you have a big responsibility. And I'll never forget that at that promotion formation. But that essentially was our mindset. We weren't going to lay, lay back and just let things happen. We, as a young platoon, we were going to run circles around everyone else. But that's how we motivated everybody to be just a little bit better. And the new leadership that came in, I think they saw that. And some of them stuck around for that second deployment or that first deployment to Kuwait, Iraq. And then that second deployment, we all kind of got redistributed. And then uh, we kind of bled into the other platoons. It was current. We remained relevant. We just we were almost like the energy for the different the different platoons. I attribute that to the, the group coming together and just being hungry, you know, especially after what just happened. Yeah, I love that. The rocker is not a hammock, by the way. Spoiler alert for you, but not everybody else. That's going to be the title of this episode, by the way. That was just, I've never heard that before. It's awesome. It's so true. I got to attribute that to Gunner Havlar, or now Warrant Officer or Gunner Havlar. That Marine, one of the best staff NCOs that I've had the opportunity to work with in one of the smartest men. He does things like he's running out of time. And I truly appreciated his leadership when we served together with 1-3. But that's the Marine that said it, and I will always hang on to it just because he said it. But definitely something to remember. Yeah, that's awesome. Is he still in? He is. He's a gunner now, and he's probably doing amazing things. But that Marine, like, love him to death. All right. Well, Gunner, hit me up with an email uh, when you hear this. So a couple more questions about that Lance Corporal time. So so there you are. You know, you're getting the, hey, belt fed, lifer, all that kind of stuff. Curious how many other Lance Corporals that were chiding you from the formation are Sergeant Majors themselves these days? I don't think there's anybody left from that group, to be honest. <laughs> okay. I'll just pause there with my point to uh, listeners. I guess the people who are chiming in from the peanut gallery didn't end up becoming sergeant majors themselves. So well done. At some point, some NCOs come in, right? And you you named them before Cox and Cole. And the lieutenant must have been new coming in after they kind of cleaned house, right? So did the officer get cleaned out too when that whole thing happened? Or was there not an officer there at the time? So at the time, we didn't have an officer. So the platoon sergeant was essentially doing both, the platoon sergeant and the platoon commander. He looked the part. He looked like a great Marine. He was doing extracurricular activities that didn't align with you know, the Marine Corps or with law, period. When he got removed, the initial staff NCO and officer that we got, or initial staff NCO, they weren't those, those gentlemen. After that first deployment, that staff NCO got rotated. He was just kind of like a filler. But the one that we got after when we got redistributed, I ended up falling under this uh, fourth platoon. Also, they also call themselves the Four Fingers of Death after our favorite MRE during that time. You know, back then, you know, we had so much pride, but he built it. You know, he built it on, on all of us. And then, you know, but we would always look at the sister platoons because they also brought the heat. But those two gentlemen, I will never forget them from 3rd and 4th platoon. I was fortunate enough to work with both of them. They just led from the front. In Fallujah, you know, there were thoughts in my head, like, I mean, when we were going into the city, like, how do I, how do I protect these men? I'm like five foot nothing. These guys are like six foot plus. Like, they stand out, snipers, you know, you name it. It was like, how do I get these guys back home? Because that's, 
That's how much I respected them, that I was prepared to take a bullet for them. And so was the rest of the platoon. So was the rest of the platoon. And I, I will never forget that for the rest of my days till today. I still try to keep in touch with them. And I hope that they listen to this, you know, because I definitely appreciate their leadership. If it wasn't for them, I think I would have eventually, you know, made my way out. But they just changed the culture of that, of that unit. Tell me about the first time you ever saw one of them chew somebody's ass. Oh, yes. So matter of fact, very scary. So they also were drill instructors, which, you know, I was kind of like, what makes them so special? Like, why, why are they like this? And I was like, is it because of the depot? Is it, you know, like, actually, they, they were one of the reasons why I actually wanted to be a drill instructor between them and the leadership that I had when I was in boot camp. I wanted to see what it was like because they were the ultimate walking knowledge book. But when they, I remember the first, well, not the first time, when I was an NCO being taken into a room with a bunch of other NCOs just basically in the backdrop to witness, basically get a PME on how to do an ass chewing. As the Marine was getting his butt chewed, I, I watched him break him down and then build him up to the point where the Marine felt like he, he let the platoon sergeant down. And it was brilliant. Till today, you know, I don't, I don't use it as much now. You know, like it has to be really, re something really, really bad. That technique, I used it for a very long time. It was almost like, you know, it started out with getting an attention gainer and then from the attention gainer, you know, basically label all the things that they did wrong with some volume. And then from there, after they've responded or lack of response, then, you know, some more vocal IDs, sometimes daisy chained together. And then it would come into a, you know, bring them back down and then get them back to stable state and let them know what, how they let down the platoon and everyone else. And those Marines just bounced back and we used it. It was like a, it was a great PME, but I never wanted to get my butt chewed by him. And out of respect, you know, as a young Lance Corporal, I considered myself like a, a baby venomous snake. There were some things that I just didn't know. I didn't know how to taper my, my venom, you know? So sometimes, you know, I would lash out and I, I didn't know how to necessarily bring it back. He obviously gave us a formula for that, but we weren't perfect at it. And because of those gentlemen, I, I think they saved my career, to be honest. I could give you an example. Went to a motor pool once because I, I was on leave and I found out somebody was talking smack. The intent was to, to hurt that person. But when I showed up to the motor pool, my staff NCO intercepted me because he caught wind that I was coming in off of leave and he wanted to know why because he, he wanted me to go on leave, leave. I kind of downplayed it. You know, he followed me throughout the, mo he warned me at first and I said, I won't do it. And as I made my way to point B, his words just kept echoing in my head. It just kept echoing. And I didn't want to let that man down. As angry as I was at the other one for trying to, to like stain my name when I'm not there, I wanted to not let my platoon sergeant down. And when I went over, I actually had a good conversation. Man to man made sure everything was clear, turned around and noticed he was in between the vehicles watching. Never know who's in the bushes watching. And he was definitely in there watching me. And he never said, good job not doing this or any, any of that. But I, I got that look. And I also gave him the look. And as I made my way out, I was like, I told you, Stetson, I wasn't going to do anything. Even though everything in my heart said, put my hands on this person, I, I didn't out of respect. And he taught me a lot with that. Today, me and that Marine, like super kosher. I mean, I saw him later as staff NCOs when we were going to his retirement, to First Sergeant Seth Cole's retirement and nothing. It, it was like nothing ever happened. But it was, I definitely credit that man for helping me out and getting in my head for the right reasons. Obviously now, I've learned some lessons, you know, even now when you, when you hold Marines accountable, there's so much within your left and right that you can do. You don't necessarily always have to go 
you know, right. nuclear. You know, you learn from those circumstances where don't always go nuclear. It doesn't always have to be a court martial. It doesn't always have to be an NJP. It doesn't have to be an ADCEP. It could definitely be something where in, in between or just getting, let's just get him the help. Let's focus on that first. And then if there needs to be punishment for something that he did, disobeyed, then at that point we hold him accountable. But in the left and right lateral limits that we have to, but let's get him the help first because as a person, we got to take care of him. And that's something I learned from that man. That's great. It's funny because when you think about, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make a comparison between a Lance Corporal and a Lieutenant here. Ready? Ready. Lance Corporals and Lieutenants, they hit the fleet and their experience to date when they hit the fleet is almost exactly the same from the perspective of what they have associated with what you do when somebody does something wrong, right? So the Lance Corporal, they come out of boot camp, they go to the MOS school, MCT, you know, like, and they yell, 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 right? Stand at parade rest, getting yelled at, getting yelled at. And then they hit the fleet and they think that that's how leaders lead. And then officers, they come out of, they come out of the Naval Academy, they come out of ROTC, that's yelling, right? Then it's OCS, that's yelling. Then it's TBS, it's a different kind of yelling. Next thing you know, you hit the fleet and you're like, well, that's what you do as a leader. You yell at people. It's kind of interesting. So one of the things that's really been fun about me doing this project is that I get to listen to all these great people like you and, and all of my former guests, and they're they're just years and years and years of experience. And I can't help but go back and critique every single thing that I remember that I did. I'll tell you, if I could go back and rewind anything, it would be, I had no business yelling at people like the way I did. I just thought that was the way it was. I At the time, I didn't, I wasn't doing anything wrong, but now I look back on it, I'm like, yeah, you know, I shouldn't have probably just done something like that. And I made this comment to a friend of mine. And he relayed this this story. I'm not going to say who told him to, but it was a story about in combat. And he was a major, a lieutenant colonel at the time, and was smoking a cigarette. And then Colonel Dumford came walking by him and said, did I just see you outside smoking a cigarette? And my friend said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, I'm really disappointed in you. And just walked away. Right? Like That's probably worse than any yelling, screaming, asked you and anybody. He can't pull that off as a Lance Corporal Lieutenant, I guess. But it's interesting to hear people reflect back on, on what Astruins were like when they were younger. And, and then the maturity that they go through, the maturation process that they go through. And that, that story is really great. What kind of advice do you have for a Lance Corporal who's listening to this right now about, hey, you know, Think about handling a situation where you feel like you want to put your hands on somebody because we know where that leads, right? That There's just nothing good that comes from that. What's a good mechanism for getting your head screwed on straight and having an effective conversation with somebody when you really just feel like throttling them? I really appreciate that question, Dave. You know, I actually cover this when I speak to the, the new joins when they come to a unit, you know, in the onboarding process. Things that people don't understand is like, you know, there's an entry-level pipeline that yes, you do the yelling, but these are trained professionals. They're either first tour drill instructors or second tour drill instructors if they're working at OCS, the Naval Academy. You may have had them, you know, if they're running an ROTC or at the colleges, they have the training to do this. When I explain to the Marines, it's like no one should be yelling at you how they yelled at you during entry level. You've made it through the crucible, you've made it through OCS, you received the Eagle Globe and Anchor, you've made it through the entry level pipeline. At this point, you, you should be treated with dignity and respect, treat people how you would want to be treated. But, you know, I didn't get that speech when I was coming in. And what you would see is, you know, you would replicate it. You would emulate, you emulate your leadership. So you end up doing it too. You know, looking back, you're right. There, there are people that I probably shouldn't have yelled at. Matter of fact, I was corrected a couple of times, not only for yelling, but also for training other NCOs to yell at, at others. You know, that, that Marine is retired right now, but I'll remember it when he brought me in because he was also a drill instructor. 
And he explained it, he broke it down, and he let us know that that wasn't necessary. But I think also as you, as a Lance Corporal and a new lieutenant, it's kind of hard to get that disappointed father feel because you're just establishing yourself and that, that entry, you know, leadership level, especially as a Lance Corporal, as a lieutenant, you're a positional leader. You, they, they know you by your position, you are in charge. But as a Lance Corporal, you're just like us, you know, like you're, you're, you're just like another Lance Corporal. So I'm not going to take that from you. It's almost like a healthy peer pressure or like a joking to kind of get them to, to not do that thing. When I go back, you know, it was just brutal truth. Like it was brutal truth. Sometimes your feelings would get hurt and we were able to get it that way instead of doing the yelling. Cause most of the time it wasn't yelling against the peers unless uh, we were circling up and we were doing like some McMap and we were pumping each other up. It was one of those where you just, it is a challenge as a peer. You have to find a way to speak to the individual where it, res- it resonates. And if you get to the point where you cross the line, almost like entering their personal space or you make it personal, at that point, you're going to be dismissed. You got to relate it to the profession. You got to relate it to to warfighting. And as a Lance Corporal, you might not necessarily be thinking about that. But even working with the Lance Corporals today, I feel like they're a lot more mature than I was when I was coming up. They're a lot more informed. You know, they see things through social media. They're a lot, a lot better trained. You know, speaking to one in the field last week, you know, came up four years in the JRLTC, Marine Corps JRLTC. So she already has a leg up, you know, on a lot of the things that, that are going on. She already knows everything compared to one who, who did not experience that. I experienced 10 months in the delayed entry program, but not necessarily a JRLTC. I knew nothing about the Marine Corps except what they were showing me. And then to see that, I think that they are armed with a lot more, a lot more information, strategies to, to basically convince their peers. It's just now the challenge that I see now is being able to confront somebody not being afraid. When we were coming up, you were a lot more accustomed to bullying in school and everything. And, and there was like a, I don't want to say it was a healthy sense of bullying because bullying is not healthy, but there was a healthy shaming where you didn't want to do that because you didn't want to be that guy or gal. And you didn't want to put yourself in that category. Today, it, it's, you know, even talking to my kids, sometimes I hear from them and it, it's like, can't call them weak because then they'll, they'll actually, yeah, I am, I am weak. And I'm like, whoa, that, that completely didn't go how you, how you expected it to go. I expected it to say, no, I'm not weak and I'm going to fight back. But they actually admit to, yeah, I'm weak. And I didn't want to go down that, that avenue. But I, I see that that is a little bit of a difference today. So the confrontation, they're not as confrontational up front. They may do it on a text. You know, they may do it on social media. So that's one of those things where the education piece comes in for the maturity. Uh, but that's one of the differences that I see. But if I was giving guidance to a Lance Corporal out there, I would say, don't make it personal. Don't get in their personal space. I would say, have a conversation, a healthy conversation about why you join. They may call you a motard. They may call you a belt fed, but you're, you're onto something. And I think, I think you're, you're looking out for your, your, yourself or for your Marines and yourself and the professionalism of the organization. So stick to your guns. Yeah. Everybody has a responsibility to hold people accountable to the standards. And, and that's not the same thing as bullying. That's not the same thing as being an asshole either. So yes, sir. Uh, that's great. When you came back from your first tour, were you still a Lance Corporal? My first deployment was, a, I did a, I would call it a micro deployment. I did a deployment okay. to Spain in 2002 as a Lance Corporal. But in my first combat deployment, I actually deployed as a corporal, brand new corporal. I actually did three combat tours as an NCO. So one as a corporal, one as a corporal, then promoted uh, right before we went into Fallujah on October 1st, 2004. And then as a sergeant, again, in the Corongo Valley 
with one three. You know, so I, I had the opportunity to do three of the four combat deployments as an NCO, and then one as a staff NCO as a gunny later with two seven. You were a corporal from your first combat tour. You were a corporal, right? Yes, sir. Okay, tell me what that was like coming home from combat for the very first time. You were you were an NCO. You were in charge of men and women in a combat zone, and now you're home. Can you talk a little bit about what that was like? And then I want to weave in the next question at the same time, which was, did you have enough experience at that point to be able to answer the question of what was the best lesson you learned from the worst leader you had? I can. And if you want to punt that question into later in your career, that's fine too. That tour taught me a lot. Actually, that's where those gentlemen that I mentioned before, they were there, but they were in other platoons. I was in a different platoon. That deployment felt like the Wild West. Communication wasn't necessarily clear, and we did the best that we could with what we what, what we had. You know, I mean, you have one radio and a convoy, sometimes up to a hundred vehicles because we need to get it moving from Kuwait to Iraq. But sometimes we were lost. Sometimes we, I mean, most of the time we slept on our gear. The experience itself actually motivated me to reenlist. I actually submitted a reenlistment package while I was out there in Iraq, and then when I came back, I had orders to go to Hawaii for the first time which got pushed to the right to be able to execute the second deployment with, at the time, Staff Sergeant Seth Cole when we got redistributed to the different platoons. But I do, I do feel that it, it matured us because we saw some things, but it was more of a, we have this experience now, now let's see what we can do with it, with these new Marines. And it fueled me, it absolutely fueled me for that next workup because that next workup, if you remember the, the initial push, there were people who, Dwell wasn't really a thing. They stood up a new company while we were out there deployed. They kept them back. So they, they stayed for another six, seven months. They redeployed the two original companies with the exception of those that stayed back. About 10 to 12 days later, one of the units went back out there. That was their dwell, two, like two weeks. And then the rest were on a basically next five months, we were getting ready for our deployment where I was supposed to PCS. I ended up staying with that unit and went on a second deployment. At this point, we had all new joints, so it was fresh, fresh blood, no bad habits. We had NCOs that were that were hardened from the first combat deployment. It gave us hope, you know, to get those new ones. And then we were able to trim the fat a little bit. With not everybody's gone, we were able to leave a few behind that weren't necessarily meeting the mark with physical fitness or disciplinary infractions. So we left them, and it actually helped us out. And then we didn't know Fallujah was going to be Fallujah. I didn't know that it was going to be in the history books. We just went because we needed each other. I'll never forget that time where I had to let my platoon go to the field by themselves. And then the, the staff sergeant at the time told me, you got to let them go because you're not going with them. You're, you're executing PCS orders. And then that turned into an extension and going with them on the next deployment. I'm so grateful that we were able to go together and come back. And actually, I had to come back a couple of weeks early because if not, I would have lost my orders. My original orders to Hawaii, my wife would have been really, really upset because it's Hawaii, you know? Right. So I'm executing both. And then I'll never forget that platoon coming back on the bus. I was on leave, but I stuck around. I remember them coming directly to me versus going to their families. And all the families looking at me like, like, they're, like I'm crazy. Like, what, what's going on? They came. They gave me a, a victory cigar, K-bar, plaque, NCO sword, and a flag. And I, I was so emotional. I couldn't even speak. My buddy who was another NCO that pretty much did all the work up with me. We went through MAI course together, everything. We bruised and broke bones together through those courses just to get ready. He was there. He had to speak for me, but it meant so much to have all of them back. 
obviously we celebrated that night and then and then off I went to my next duty station. But I will never forget that feeling uh, leading them. But a lot of that, you know, going to that, that second question you were talking about, when you talk about bad leadership, it actually fueled me to not do those things. You learn from the good leaders, but you also learn from the bad leaders or what you assume to be the bad leaders. There's misinformation out there about toxic leadership. Sometimes they use it as like a, uh, a bumper sticker type word, you know, like, let me just pull this out of the pocket because it's, it, it gets a lot of attention when you say toxic leader. What really is toxic leadership? Because what might seem toxic to you might actually be leadership. So if you have somebody who's involved in your life and you call them intrusive because they're involved in everything that you invited them to be involved in, some would call that toxic, where I actually call that leadership, you know, because you're actually involved in their life and it actually helps transform them versus being transactional where you're offering stick and carrot award NJP and now you're actually involved in their life, their birthdays, the anniversaries, some of those things that most don't think about, but will absolutely, absolutely fuel them to do more versus, you know, just, just do it because they're getting something at the end or not getting something at the end. And so when I look at that, I learned so much from those, those leaders that just didn't, I thought didn't fulfill their quota or like their, their leadership experience. They didn't, they didn't put out everything that they should have put out. It actually told me, what can I do different? And from there, I just took it to another level. I mean, till today, I've gone back to school. I just want to know more about leadership. I want to know what, what can I do outside of what the Marine Corps cookie cutter package gives me. Like, what can I do outside of that to elevate the performance? Back in school, sergeant major, still in college, doesn't have a degree yet because he's still working for that, to that, towards that bachelor. But why, why are you there? Because I made excuses. I took breaks. And now, even now when I'm at my most busiest, I'm still pushing and pursuing that because I just want to know what I can do to push people to do even more. But that came from those leaders that I didn't feel like they met that bar. I, I don't feel like they were reaching for the ceiling. Like our old Sergeant Major of the Marine Corps used to say, they weren't reaching for the ceiling. They were reaching for whatever they could get by with. Tier three staff NCOs leading tier one Marines just because they were comfortable. Well, it's time to get uncomfortable. It's time to you know be comfortable being uncomfortable. That's what it's going to take. If you want to lead at this level, you have to be comfortable being uncomfortable. And I don't know if you'll ever be, but you can make those efforts to being uncomfortable or being comfortable in that uncomfort level. That's what I took from those leaders. That's awesome. You made that comment before about there's Marines out there that treat their rocker like a hammock. I, that's so great. I wish there was another one that kind of rhymed with officer rank. It doesn't, but there's, you know, there's officers out there that are doing the same thing. Actually, it was my dad who told me when I was a young kid, like you can learn as much from a bad leader as you can a good leader. It's just different. And that's where that question comes from, because I, I do think that there's so much to be learned from. And then I also kind of hope that when people tell that story, they they also maybe give people an aha moment of, geez, he's talking about exactly the way I act. Maybe I'm not Maybe that's not such a great way for me to be a leader, but back to Don Reynolds, Sergeant Major Reynolds, when we were talking in, in, in part of his podcast, we talked about a lot, of, a lot about physical training. And I know there's, there's that element of lead by example, do as I say, not as I do it, all of those things. We're all familiar with the things, but I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about some of your experience with just throughout your career, physical fitness, how you treated it as a leader, what were the things that you found important? And then how did you lead and encourage Marines who who weren't as physically fit as you, but they needed to be in better shape. They weren't necessarily bad, you know. They weren't fat pigs, but they just they needed to improve their physical conditioning. Did you have some good experience that with that that you could share? And can you couch that experience in a way that a lieutenant can also hear it and understand his or her role in 
PT at the platoon and or company level. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Especially when, uh, you know, going to the lieutenant, thinking about when they, when they show up, they're so full of energy. And it, sometimes you may see the facial expressions of, uh, or being unwelcome. But for me, as a senior staff NCO, I welcome it. And I talk to the staff NCO leadership in their platoon. So like, hey, welcome that energy. It's going to rejuvenate you. Uh, it's something that is needed because if not, you're just going to get complacent. Use that, feed off that energy. But at the same time, coach them because not everybody's at that level of play. I mean, at OCS, I had to step up my level. I mean, some, some of them are collegiate athletes. Yeah. So you're, 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 you know, you're sitting here doing sprints with them where you're getting smoked. And especially, you know, as a first sergeant there wearing a red shirt, I was a target. I was a target. They were, they were trying to beat me. And I was my first PFT with them. I run a 1930. And then when they do the stats at the end, they're like, oh, 1935 average. That's the average, you know, because they're, they're running, you know, 21 or better if they're at that end. But so they come to the fleet, they have all this energy and you have to kind of coach them, you know. So as a senior enlisted, I bring them in, I talk to them, but that's where that coaching comes in and not necessarily, they got to be careful with how it comes out where it's not belligerent. But for PT, I love PT. I love PT. You know, I think it's the fountain of youth, to be honest, like, uh, and those Marines keep me younger and alive when we do it, but I'm not going to be the fastest. To me, it's an attention gainer. I know if I join some of these Marines on PT or when I do, my body pays for it like two or three days after while they just recovered yeah. that same day. In my opinion, I don't think they care if you beat them. I think they care more that you participated in there and that you didn't fall out and that you were there as an example. I'll, I'll put it like this. like the, When I joined this unit, they created an intramural soccer team. Well, here we go. You know, We got Marines that are going forward. And as the flights are leaving, that means the rest of the soccer team left. So they asked the CEO and myself, to, oh, you guys, you gentlemen play soccer. Can you, can you help our team out? And when we showed up, most of the team was already gone. And I was like, now you got 40 plus year olds. Basically, you got about to play with 18 <laughs> to 22 year olds. And we won that game, 1-0. But man, it, it took a while to recover from that. Matter of fact, after the season, we went all the way to the championship. But it was like the motivation, the change, you know, just showing up there. I didn't, I didn't play all the game. I didn't, I, I didn't play most of the games. Like I, I, or most of the game in the games, but I did show up, I showed support and it just, it fueled the team. The same thing with the Marine Corps. You know, you go over there, hey, I want you to invite me to PT. You know, if you have it, don't feel obligated, invite me, I'll show up. And, you know, sometimes they'll challenge you. It's like, oh, we're going to do a machine gun run. And it's like, okay, I'll be there. Hey, we're going to start this fight club. Okay, I'll be there. I'm there to support. And then you show up. And when you show up, I'm with Biofreeze. I got like, you know, KT tape, everything going on just to make sure that I, I, I survive it. One, but I'm not giving the machine gun again. I got it. You know, it's like, oh, sorry, Major, we got that, that right there. Now I got your attention. Now, how do you feed off of that attention? Now that I got your attention, let me, let's talk a little bit about leadership. Let's throw in a hip pocket class at the end. Let's talk a little bit about life. I've always found that the PT is essentially an attention gainer. Some of the, the most depressing moments in my career was when I had to get shoulder surgery or surgery on my lower back, and I was out of the game for a little bit, but within five months back in the game, and then going to, you know, like five months later after back surgery, you go to the advanced course as a gunny and graduate or as, a, as a gung-ho and honor grad, because it was just like that much, I was just so hungry to get back, you know, feeding off of everybody in that class. But those are, those are things that, you know, that steel sharpens steel. You've heard of that phrase or, you know, yeah. iron sharpens iron. Even as the older guy, you showing up over there, or is, if you're the, new, the platoon sergeant or the leadership, you going out to PT and not just saying, hey, you gentlemen have to go, or you, 
need a PT or whatnot, not necessarily being there, you gain so much respect, in my opinion, than somebody who just tells them they got a PT and PT's on their own in some rainbow attire, looking like a third world militia. And then they come back and then basically pretend like they PT'd. Maybe they, maybe they got like two beads of sweat and, and make the excuse that I, I was just letting them develop on their own. They want you there as a leader. They want you there. They may not say it, but they want your presence there and you should show it as a leader. You don't always have to be at the point of friction. You don't always have to be at, at, in the front, but you as a leader should be involved with your Marines. If you're not, you're missing out too. You're not going to get that opportunity again. Time's going to run out. Do what you can while you have that position. That's great advice. And I think you're right. I reflect back on my career and I think, you know, you're absolutely right. The Marines don't need to see you come in first place. They just need to see you out there putting out, right? Like not lagging in the back, not bullshitting around. Like they just want to see you putting out. And and to the Marines that beat you on the PFT, you walk up to them and you say, hey, awesome job, way to put out. You know, you're you're setting the example for the rest of the Marines to to try to get better. And and you know, that's that's really great. And then you turn around the Marines that came in behind you, you say, like, hey, you know, way to put out. And I don't know, PT should be a, a collegial sort of thing where you're motivating each other and and you're trying to instill some unit esprit de corps. I don't want to use a cliche term too much, but those things are important and PT's great for that. And and you're right. The Marines want to see you out there. They don't want to think that they're out there doing PT while you're inside drinking coffee. Absolutely, sir. You got to you got to get out there. Probably just should have said it like that. <laughs> I may just delete everything I just said and put that in there, but yeah. How about some lessons learned in terms of dealing with adversity, right? Cuz you know, you're a sergeant major, so you've made it to the top rank. And I know there's still some levels to go there, but you know, that's encouraging for Marines to hear about. But there's no way that your career has has gone on without some sort of adversity that you've had to deal with, or maybe you even gotten your trouble yourself or something like that. Can you talk about some of the lessons that you learned throughout your career where you dealt with adversity and you're able to overcome it because you're a sergeant major and that's pretty measurable? Yes, sir. Uh, you know, some of them I talked about before when we were talking about the physical fitness, but the, uh, you know, adversity overcoming injuries where you put out so much that you take yourself out of the game. That's, that's part of it. Easy to use it and milk it to, to basically make my way out of the, the service with some kind of disability or wear and tear percentage that basically takes care of me for the rest of my life. But that wasn't, that wasn't my end goal. My end goal was to continue serving until the wheels fall off. That's some adversity, adversity in relationships, you know, where I've only been in the service for a short period, 23 years and some change. And in that period, I've been fortunate to be married to my wife that I got married to at the age of 19, which went against all statistics and stayed with the same woman, you know, and have four kids with her and multiple moves and everything else. The adversity in the relationship where you leave all the time to the point where it's like, how do, how do you sustain that? What is the secret? There, like the secret is that you got to work at it. And then you have like the adversity where you have you know, we're, we're professionally, you may go against the rules of the game that we play. And sometimes you may not, you know, may not do exactly what they tell you to do, or maybe you're required to go do something and, and but you have to take an operate or you have to take a knee or you have to take a pause and take care of something personal and you not necessarily don't move up or you take a, you know, you take a punch in the face when you do something wrong. I am fortunate enough to have leaders early in my career that kind of directed me to the point where I never received uh, non-judicial punishment. I mean, I was close. I had a Marine who was not accounted for that I will never forget. And to today, it affects me with accountability. Like, I will call everybody by name because of that Marine. And that situation specifically, that Marine told me he was at dental. I took his word for it. Wasn't at my formation. 
And then EMS is, is coming to this house because he's, you know, almost overdosed on drugs. And now at this point, now I'm being questioned and read my rights and everything else. Been read my rights for many other things, you know, where Marines are making allegations. But at the end, you know, I've been fortunate to just, you know, tell the truth, be honest. Even if I made a mistake, apologize, maybe receive a counseling here or there, or maybe get talked to, but never anything, never anything that redirected my course. Adversity where because of an injury, I wasn't able to do PME. And back then the, the seminars didn't exist. And even though, you know, the rank of first sergeant is not considered a pass, I was not selected on one of the boards. That was also fuel for the fire when I went to advanced course and to graduate gung-ho and undergrad. Basically, I just wanted to, I wanted to knock it out of the park. And I couldn't believe that that was what held me back. I should have done it earlier and stopped listening to everybody that said it. You were too important. And you need to stay in this billet. You should have just went out there and, and seek the, the uh, PME. But I've gone through a lot of adversity in the short 23 years. But even in those 23 years, I think you build relationships. You find ways to overcome it. You know, for me, PT is definitely one of those uh, adversity killers. And what I mean by that is like PT for me is like meditation. You could probably relate with this. When you go on a long hike, sometimes those are the times where you wish you had no taking gear and a, and a pencil. You think about everything. You think about life. You think about what you can do. You, at this point, your hands are all swollen. It's dark. You can't write anything. You want to record what you're talking about. And just so many ideas and so many lessons learned go through your head, well, at least for me. And that's one of those where it actually motivates me to do something else or start up with a new idea or something for, for the group, which then pushes me to go do some research on something else. Like this weekend alone, I got three point papers that I want to write because I, I just want to see some change, but it all comes from those PT events. But that adversity, I can't go to one recipe to overcome that adversity. I just say, don't let that adversity tap you out. You know, you're better than that. Don't let, don't let it be the reason why you change your way. And if you had some, some of my best Marines, some of my best Marines were Marines that overcame adversity. You know, whether it was an injury, whether it was some kind of non-judicial punishment, court-martial, they overcame and they were better. And I would gladly deploy with some of those Marines again in the most hostile place on this planet if the balloon was to rise up. And that's because I seen the character that, that came out when that adversity actually showed his ugly head. But adversity, you can do it. Don't let it tap you out. Yeah, I agree with that too, because a majority of my guests that have come on this project have told some story about how they have overcome some sort of personal adversity, right? And you can listen to general officers and admirals who talk about the stuff that they did when they were captains and they probably should have gotten in a lot of trouble for or did actually get in a lot of trouble for and still became generals and officers and and sergeant majors. And I mean, Sergeant Major Black tells some stories and it's, you can overcome the, there's the ones you can't come back from. You talk about writing a point paper. I could write a whole point paper on DUIs, but you know, DUIs are measurable, right? So we hold Marines accountable for for that because it's bad judgment, but there's a lot of other bad judgment that happens out there too. I think that there's some that you can't come back from and then there's some that you can from. It requires leadership to be supportive of it. It was like you were saying when uh, when you shoot somebody's ass and you bring them back up and I've had officers talk about how they run NJP and then you know they raise their voice and then they build the Marine back up and I think it takes good leaders to do that. But you know it's it's interesting that you have grown so much as a leader. I want to ask you some questions about leadership in the context of the drill field, because you've got this great experience about being a drill instructor. Everybody who comes to the Marine Corps has experience with a drill instructor, but not a lot of people have experience in being a drill instructor. 
what are some of the things that you learned being a drill instructor that most people don't see from a leadership perspective? What I'm really curious about is, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in order to become a drill instructor, you're talking about the 1% of people, they don't take shipbirds into DI school. And if they do, they don't make it through. Is that a fair assessment? I can say that's a fair assessment. You know, is that an officer assessment of drill instructor school? Or? I can say that's a fair assessment, but like to give credit to the other special duty assignments, I think you take mm-hmm. the best of the best to do the special duty assignments. The difference, you know, just in dealing with the, you know, the reenlistment packages and, and the uh, screening, it's essentially physical fitness. You know, like if you look at the MSG, you look at, you look at the recruiting, you'll notice that, that the one requirement that, that stands out is like they have to be a first class PFT to be a drill instructor. So you're talking about like, the most fit, you know, but doesn't necessarily mean that the, the least fit won't go there, but the most fit also go to, you know, special duty assignments like recruiting and MSG. But as a drill instructor, I was fortunate enough to do two tours. The first time was at Paris Island, where I basically went to, you know, as a sergeant selected for staff, for staff sergeant, went to, to DI school and was able to experience something so great. First, backtrack, why did I want to be a drill instructor? Well, the experience I had initially with recruit training, where I saw the professionals, like the best of the best, they looked so squared away in uniform. They were what I remembered, what I thought the Marine Corps would be like. Just like that comment that you made earlier, where everybody assumes that it's going to be like, you know, the drill field, you know, when you get to the fleet. Mm-hmm. Well, fast forward, meeting those two individuals, I was like, what's the recipe that makes it? I must be a drill instructor. So I really wanted to be a drill instructor. Met some other individuals and are like, you know, and then the, the whole argument about East Coast, West Coast. But I wanted to go where, where I was born as a Marine. So I went back to Paris Island. When I went to Paris Island, I experienced DI school and it was amazing to see the, the level of leadership that was there. I mean, I looked at them at the PT table and I emulated that. And I was like, you know what? At the end, I think I'm gonna, I really wanna be back here as one of these instructors. And you know, so I, I had the opportunity. I served some cycles as a, as a green belt drill instructor some as well as a black belt, a senior drill instructor. And then they went through a change there where it went to series gunner sergeant, then chief drill instructor before I went on a board and was able to serve as a drill instructor, school instructor for about four classes. And I can tell you that the experience there was one of the most challenging experiences for myself in, in my career. Best of the best Marines that I still stay in touch with today. Most of them are the leaders uh, or the ones that stayed in our leaderships, whether, whether they were officers, born officers, they're, they're senior enlisted. Uh, whether they went the the first sergeant or master sergeant route, they're everywhere. And it is so great, like the reunions that we have there. That was the one place where I'm at 155 right now. I went all the way to about 112 pounds. I was disappearing. I had to change my civilian attire if we got time off because it was just, that's how, how much physical activity you're doing. And you're not necessarily eating healthy. Back then, there was a stigma of your eating and everything. Things have changed and I think they've changed for the better. But what I would tell you is like the best of the best, all volunteers at the time, uh, learned so much from them, steel sharpening steel. But that's where I learned that, that there was more MOSs out there that actually had people just like, like like-minded individuals, people that were not afraid to be out there in the sun, were not a- afraid to almost freeze. It was just a different caliber of people. And I enjoyed it so much that, uh, well, later I had another opportunity. I didn't pick it, but it picked me. And I was given a choice. They gave me four choices, they said. Paris Island, Paris Island, Paris Island, or Officer Candidate School, uh, Quantico. And I was like, oh, I thought you said four choices. Yeah, I got three places for you in Paris Island. I was like, well, let me try Officer Candidate School. Let's do that. And I could tell you that that was even better. That was even better just to see the, you know, like recruit training. 
most of those new Marines, they, they get out by the first enlistment. You know, there's, they're rarely, I mean, you have platoons that, you know, got like 80 plus personnel, you know, and you do multiple, you know, it, it's hard to remember everybody. The candidates, there's like three cycles in a, in a, in a year. And as you're training them, the officer that, you know, maybe has a one to 40 ratio when they get to the fleet, you know, just the level of impact that they give. So now you've, you're a second tour drill instructor. You've learned from any of your mistakes. You're still learning and you're doing it a little bit different because it, it's two different entry-level pipelines. And one is a Marine, one is, or one is training to be a Marine, to become a Marine, one is trained to become a Marine officer. So there's differences in the leadership. You know, the yelling, that transactional leadership is a lot more in, in entry-level recruit training versus the OCS where, you know, they have to make decisions. They have to make decisions. And these decisions, you know, the pressure is not necessarily putting them on the quarter deck. That pressure, it comes from like writing on a clipboard and they don't know what you're writing. You know, the studying after hours or whatnot, because they're, they're trying to ace that test and they're making sure that they can lead their peers, that that constant rotation of billets, that was a lot more challenging. But I had the, the pleasure and the honor of serving with some of those same drill instructors that I had on the East Coast. I got to get some experience with those from the West Coast. And then even some of my own DI school students at OCS were, I didn't, they didn't talk much when they were in DI school, but they talked plenty when they were over at OCS because we have some stories to, sh to share. <laughs> and I was so happy with the performance of those Marines, the, the performance on demand that they had and the like-minded that actually when I went to 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines as a SAR major, I tried to recruit as many as I could there. And so many came. And I think that relationship that we built in that unit or in those units and then coming together to help build this into the IBX and into the MLR or to the LCT, I think those individuals had a great part because we just had that chemistry from the get-go. Instead of trying to learn each other, it was just natural. It wasn't like, oh, I think Sergeant Major is just pretending. No, like they know me already. They knew me since 2008, you know, so we've had that relationship all the way through there. And that chemistry was super important in that change. But the drill field, I highly encourage Marines, even in our unit, like go to a special duty assignment. You don't know, like you're going to open up that aperture of leadership. You're going to open up that experience. You're going to know what hard really is. Again, I go back to getting comfortable being uncomfortable. That was probably the most challenging, but that's where I found, I found home with some of my, some of the people that were like-minded. In the fleet, you feel where you're doing a lot of pooling to get them to a certain level. Uh, there, I felt like I was getting left behind if I didn't maintain pace. Matter of fact, individuals at OCS are what got me back into college. If it wasn't for them and the pressure that they put, I was like, man, I have to stay relevant. You know, how, how am I going to be their leadership? I have Marines that have degrees and I don't, I don't have anything. They pushed me. They pushed me to be, a be to be better. That was that pressure from, from below up. And I truly appreciate that about that. But I, didn't, I wouldn't have experienced, I don't think I would have experienced that if I didn't do, I didn't do drill instructor duty. But that was a very hard duty. But I will not take that back. I am very grateful that I had the opportunity, very proud of what the service that they do. And for those that are on the fence about going to a special duty assignment, just do it. Two ways to jump in a pool, like was said in, in that movie, Superstar, you ease in and just kind of feel the waters or just jump in, just jump in. You got what it takes or else you wouldn't be on the hiss. You got what it takes or else you wouldn't volunteer. Get out there, do a special duty assignment, get back and make that fleet stronger. That's awesome. The question I'm dying to ask is when you're in an environment like drill instructors where everybody is is a high quality candidate, like you said, it was, you know, you're you're in the top 1%. You're you have proven yourself to be worthy of wearing the hat. And I don't think that 
Well, you tell me if I'm wrong. I don't think that the drill instructor universe has the 10% that are shitbags. They may have like the 0.1%, right? The, the occasional bad apple. But as a whole, you're talking about a, a pool of highly qualified leaders. What challenges did you face or did you see others face in leading people who really are the top 1% of whatever it is they're doing. Like, it's kind of easy to be a leader in a unit that isn't performing really well. Like, bringing them up to standard is kind of clear cut. But when everybody is the top of the standard, how is leadership different there? So I'd say at Officer Candidate School, it was a lot easier because you're a second tour drill instructor, you've experienced it. But when, when you're first going to the depot to be a drill instructor, Type A, 100% meat eaters, like everybody is 100 miles per hour. You have to respect the positions that they're in. You know, they have certain positions of authority, even though that Marine may have been in less time than you, may have experienced less combat, or has a, you know, MOS that doesn't necessarily, you know, hasn't led many people. When you look at that, the one thing I, that stands out to me was humility, was humility. Because you go there and, some, and you're still going through the growing that you did in your first duty station or your second duty station. And as you're growing, you're dealing with individuals that just sometimes they just don't comprehend. Sometimes they just don't want to, they don't want to listen. And you do get that friction. Like MCDP1 describes it, friction, making the easy difficult. Even though they know that they have to go in this direction, this certain direction, they, they want to be the friction because they think they have a better idea when the plan is the plan. Let's just execute this plan. Even if it's not a well-orchestrated plan, this is a plan and we got to respect the person who made the plan because this is our position, this is our billet. But sometimes you find those, like imagine a Marine Corps where everyone is a tier one. Then at that point, then who's a tier two, three, and four? You still have, you're still gonna break down into tiers. But eventually, you know, like, like let's just say, you know, 0331s last year, all of them were tier one Marines that re-enlisted. There, there was like, it, it filled up so fast, 0331s. Every tier, every 0331 that re-enlisted was a tier one Marine, top 10%. So at that point, let's just say four or five years out, those Marines are still in, you know, then who is the tier two and tier three from that group? Somebody's got to be a tier three. So when you get to the depot where you have a top 10%, those usually make it to certain, certain places. I, I was fortunate enough to get boarded to go to drill instructor school and experience some great leaders there. But I would argue that there's a lot more, if they had more billets at DI school, you'd have a lot more people there. But the top 10% of, of that group right there, of the drill instructors would go over there. But you also have drill instructors that are, are evenly distributed, whether they have a, a McMap qualification or a McQuist, they go to those places where they can make those areas stronger. That doesn't mean they're not top 10%. They're absolutely top 10%. So now if you have a depot full of top 10% talent, who's the tier two, who's the tier three, and, and so on, someone's got to be it. And so at that point, you get sometimes you you get a little bit of hostility between peers. Sometimes you get the the one that badmouths the other, or you feel like they're a sniper and trying to take you out of your career. There's some that get carried away with like what they're supposed to be doing as a drill instructor, and they try to get creative because they can't find discipline the way that they're they're instructed to do it. So they get creative. But if you do it right, you stick to the black and white. You, you one you don't end up having to get another RTO or SOP, you know, redevelop because you didn't create a new infraction. To, you know, like you're just going to make the level of play at that location even better. But just stick to the rule book, stick to the rule book, work with each other, humility, humility, humility. You have to humble yourself, respect that position. 
when it's your turn, they're going to do the same thing. Just do it from the get-go. Build your maturity. Don't go in there. You're not kids. You got a responsibility to develop the future fighters for the core. Yeah. So I want to ask you a question about your time at OCS, and then I'm going to bounce back to Paris Island. So I'm starting with OCS now. I don't know if a lot of enlisted Marines know that when officers go to boot camp, there's drill instructors there. Those are drill instructors that are running OCS. I don't know if people know that, mostly because I don't think you all wear your campaign covers there, right? That's correct. We don't wear campaign covers for a reason because it's officers and recruits. It's a little bit, it's a little bit different. Okay, so that, that's interesting to know why. But it's all drill instructor coming up from Paris Island or San Diego to run OCS. So officers, candidates are called, not recruits, they're candidates. They're being run through OCS by drill instructors, by licensed operators, right? Like you guys. So from your perspective, did you do 10-week or did you do Bulldog? What did you- I did the 10-week courses. I also did the the six-week. My last two cycles was with uh, the seniors, which is, uh, you know, six-week course, a lot very uh, faster pace. They're hiking right out the get-go at a higher higher mileage. It's just the PT is a little bit a little bit more than the 10 weeks. They've had their phase one. They're coming in there. Oh, yeah. So I doubt very seriously that every single officer candidate made it through whatever series you were leading. Can you talk about were there some common traits or were there some some things that you can share? What were the traits that you saw trip up officer candidates the most and cause them not to make it through OCS and become an officer? What were the failure points? That's a great question, Dave. Like actually, you know, when we talk, when you went through OCS, the bulldog was a little bit different, you know, like where where now, you know, MESEPs or ECP Marines are essentially going to uh, the 10 week course. They're not going through six weeks, they're going through 10 weeks. And those 10 weeks, some of them are used for their skills to kind of help the other candidates, you know, get them up to speed. Mm-hmm. Some of them, sometimes they struggle with the physical fitness, not necessarily prepared as much or they're struggling with just dealing with starting over. I would like to say that the most of them have the advantage, you know, because they have have an idea of how to do it. It's a TBS where they find the challenge for, the, for those groups. You're talking about MESEPs, ECP. And MESEPs, just for people listening that don't know what that is, that's, that is you're an enlisted Marine and you, you assess into an officer program to get a commission and you're, MESEP, you're at an ROTC unit as an active duty enlisted Marine, but you're going through ROTC with the rest of the ROTC midshipmen in pursuit of a commission. And what you're saying is that those MESEPs, Marine Corps Enlisted Commissioning Program, I think is what it stands for, they still have to go to OCS. So they've gone to boot camp, right? They've earned the title Marine. They still have to go to OCS. Still go through OCS. Just like I did, just like a candidate does. 10 weeks. But what I heard you say was that it's it's different now. They go they go to a 10-week where the ROTC may still go to the six-week. They go to the 10-week. The ROTC will go to the six-week. So the, the 10 weeks that they're doing, they have an advantage, the MESEP and the ECP. So the difference is one has the degree and the other one is working towards the degree. You know, when, so one of them can go, doesn't have to go to the college. They'll go to the college after they complete the course. Or for the MESEPs, they'll go to the college after they complete the course. For the ECP, they've already completed college, so they're just commissioning as an enlisted. And then uh, they go through their 10 weeks. Once they commission for the ECPs, they'll go to TBS or the basic school. For the ones that graduate as a MESEP, they'll go to college and finish their last two years, and then they'll go to TBS. So when you look at that, they have challenges. But you know, I would like to think as o- of OCS or officer-, officer Candidate School as like the job interview for officers. Because where they really get the training to become an, a Marine officer is at the basic school. But they get the job interview. You've made it 10 weeks. You can do all these different things. So now you're going to go over here 
and we're going to focus six months on making you a Marine officer. So they go through the physical fitness. So the physical fitness is very demanding. Sometimes they get injured. That seems to be one of the issues. They're retaining the knowledge, not coming there prepared with the knowledge. When Officer Candidate School, the website itself has the knowledge there for you. The humility in basically dealing with the instructors. So the teams are usually composed of a platoon commander that's a captain. You have the sergeant instructors, which are staff NCOs, like uh, staff sergeants, gunnery sergeants. You will have a company commander that's a major, a company first sergeant, which is a first sergeant. You'll have a an executive officer and a company gunny, which is captain and a gunnery sergeant. So the composition is a lot more senior when it comes to you know the experience. Some of these captains that are, are there as platoon commanders have been a company commander at one point. Some of them are also uh, you know augments that come in from like the expedition or warfare school. Once they finish up in Quantico, they come over and they may augment for a summer. Because you also have, you have permanent personnel and augments that are screened, selected to basically train the future officers. So you go in there, you'll have the, in the summer is the big one. The, the summer is where you have the mix of the seniors and the juniors, which happens to reflect on the time in college. They'll come in for the six weeks, but at the same time, you'll have three 10-week companies that are going. So you got three 10-week companies and two six-week companies that are going. Yeah, so those six weeks, they complete, and then you got the part two that comes in for another six weeks, six weeks. So it turns into like that staff turns into working like 12 plus weeks because you have your, your staff orientation course, which gets everybody on board. The most physically fit will most likely be in the training companies, which is the ones that are, are training the, the candidates uh, in certain things. And then for the ones that may be going to schools or, or doing other things, they'll kind of work at the academics, which they're in charge of making sure they retain the knowledge. And then you, you also have some that are working at the uh, tactics area because they, they have to be tactically inclined, at least know the basics. And that place, when you have second tour drill instructors, East Coast, West Coast, you have a certain level of leadership. These are, these are drill instructors that, I don't want to say survived Paris Island or San Diego. I want, I want to say they thrived there and they were screened and selected to be instructors, sergeant instructors. So they wore an eight-point cover and they'll wear a black belt, all of them. There's no senior drill instructor, experienced drill instructor. You may have one that's that is the most senior of them, you know, which is like your platoon sergeant. They essentially work together, and these individuals are so mature they they complement each other. They already know what the duties are like. There's a a different way of developing them because, for example, a big difference between recruit training when I went and officer candidate school is they hold billets. The candidates hold billets. They'll rotate through two to three days where you may have one as a candidate company commander. You may have one as a candidate platoon commander, a candidate platoon sergeant. So they see that, even the enlisted billets, when they hold formation and everything else, and then they learn some of those positions. So when they, they go to the fleet, they actually have an idea of what those billets are and what they entail. Because we give them a billet description. We basically give them a counseling at the end of three days to let them know where they stood. But there's a difference in leadership development versus... Uh, you know, now recruit training has changed, but back then where it was a lot of, uh, a lot of yelling. And then when they made, they left still looking like robots as they were making their way to, you know, SOI, there's a big difference. Yeah. So you did some 10 week programs then. So that's a direct commissioning, right? When they're done with their 10 week OCS, they are lieutenants. So their last day with you is putting on the bars with you. What was that like? I didn't go through that program, so I didn't get commissioned until a year after I finished OCS, but I got to imagine that there's... Okay. I can imagine it going two ways. You either have an, an immense amount of pride for what you have just 
create, you've created a Marine officer, right? Or you've screened and evaluated somebody that's going to be a Marine officer and you're immensely proud or you sit, you sit in the hooch with the other sergeant instructors and you say, Jesus, I can't believe that <laughs> these guys are going to be guys and guys are going to be officers tomorrow. Or maybe it was both those emotions. There's a little bit of both because there's some that they, they graduate barely making it. But you know that they're still going to be good. They're still going to be good. They, 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 you have an idea. They're, you know that this is the job interview and the next, the next step at TBS, they're actually going to go through six months or more of training, depending on how much they need to get them to that next level. But it's such a proud moment. That day of graduation, you know, or even the family day, when you see how proud the families are, it's just yeah. like, man, we made that. Like when you see them march across the parade that we made that. You know, the instructors themselves, we celebrate. We go to the Marine Corps Museum, or back then we did, and we go to Tun Tavern in the Marine Corps Museum and celebrate, you know, we did this, you know, now to get ready for the next cycle. It's just, uh, you know, one of those things that very proud moment, but just to kind of backtrack. So the MESEPs and ECPs go through the 10 weeks. So some of those, they still got to go to school. Right. So they'll graduate there. They still got to graduate school and come back. So that, that's, a, that's a difference when you can't, went in compared to now, they go through 10 weeks, not even, you would think they would do six weeks, but 10 weeks to go through. The proud moments that we had there, I'll never forget. And then even more proud moments. Now that, you know, I left there in November of 19 and I could tell you that uh, I see them all over the fleet and you can see that in their face because they just, the expression, it's kind of like a recruit sees you. They, they, they just, they want to call you sir or first sergeant, or it's like a, a, like they saw a ghost and then now you're actually smiling at them. So they don't know how to react. And then you have this conversation, you see how they're doing. It's pretty neat to see the transformation, you know, they have hair now, you know, they didn't have hair back then, you know, like now they have hair, they, they have personalities, but it's very neat to see how they've grown and the, the level of influence that they have because they've had platoons at this point. Right. I have some officer candidates that are captains now. I've seen them, like, I think my last class already, you know, most of them are captains. It just feels good. Yeah, I'll bet. You may not be able to answer this question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Okay, so the night before they graduate, do you thrash them just a little bit more? Maybe just a tiny bit? <laughs> no, we actually don't. Like, I heard the stories, and I, I'm, I'm like a really stick to the rule book. Like, I, you know, yeah. even, even as a recruit, when I was going through recruit training. Oh, I meant the officers, not the recruits. Yeah, but, but well, not like yeah. when I was a recruit, you know, there was a little bit of like where you thought it was going to happen. And, and, you know, maybe some did happen, but not, not necessarily to us. Fast forward, and even now with the officers, we didn't we didn't mess around. I mean, we heard the stories and everything else. We kept it as professional as possible. It wasn't necessary. It was very proud moments. Actually, that night before, you actually sit down with, with them. They talk to all the instructors, and they share some of their stories and everything else, you know, some of the experiences. Actually, sometimes they even do what they call a gong show, where they impersonate the instructors, or they kind of go through... You know, and that, that one, I don't necessarily agree with it, but, you know, it, it worked out for- like a, like a roast or something. Like a roast, because there are, there are some funny things that the instructors do, even though they would not like to admit it. Some of their mannerisms and everything else just doesn't look normal when you're yelling a certain way and there's a loss of bearing. But it, it's a, uh, where they exchange contact information in case they need anything when they get to the fleet. We kind of changed it up. At least when I got there, it felt very professional. No thrashing. I wish I was still in touch with my platoon sergeant, sergeant instructor from OCS. I mean, you know, I don't know. I would love to let them know, hey, here's what I ended up doing. Because there was 45 of us that they graduated that became officers. We lost a couple out of my platoon, which is why I was kind of getting to that question. Sounds about, like, you know, like it might have been a fall or winter cycle. 
Actually, I was summer. I was I was what they called golf too. So I was the end of July all the way through August. And it was, I mean, you know, Quantico. Oh, man. And you said this before, and I won't belabor the point because this is your podcast, not mine. But I thought officer candidate school was really hard. It was physically very hard. And I have friends who then went as captains, like you said, they finished up EWS or something like that. And they got tagged for going over and being a company commander or a, or a platoon commander for OCS. And and I remember them all telling me like, man, OCS is hard now. <laughs> like I had to get my ass back in shape to be able to hang with it because they're really, it's pretty damn challenging. But look, Mick Rick may get mad at me for classifying it like this, but you're screening and evaluating people to say, okay, can they become officers? And then you're right, they're going to TBS and they're, that's re- they're really not learning a whole lot at OCS. You're testing them. Whereas down at the depot, you're, you're making Marines there. And it is a little bit different, but so I'm curious if I can now go back to your depot time and then, and then we'll move on. But same kind of question was, was there any sort of common characteristic that you saw in the leaders, the hats that would catch them up and cause them to fail as leaders and, and get in trouble? Like what were some of the leadership pitfalls that would come across that, the, the hats? So in the fleet, you know, sometimes we call them light switch NCOs, basically those that perform when others are looking, but not necessarily behind the scenes. So the performance of the individuals in their, in their, or the team that they have is like, they see through that and they respond a certain way. Well, in the depot, we call them chow hall killers, you know, where they would turn it up in the, you know, in the mess hall, or they would turn it up when everybody's looking, but we had our terms. Those were known as lovers. That term lover sometimes fueled individuals to do the wrong thing. And, and they ended up getting held accountable because they, they went too far forward with being that chow hall killer, the light switch NCO that they didn't know how to fix it or get them back on track. So they turned it up doing things that they weren't supposed to do. And those individuals, they usually get held accountable. But if you do it right from the beginning, you set the tone at the beginning and you maintain or you stay constant with that firm, fair, uh, with dignity and respect, the outcome will be a well-disciplined platoon. It will be a well-disciplined, well-manufactured unit uh, ready to go. What usually gets them in trouble is that they don't stay consistent with it. They may get complacent after a couple cycles because they, they think they know it. If you act like, you, like you're learning for the first time every time you're doing it, I know sometimes it may seem challenging. You know, do it like it's your last. Do it like it's the first. Do it like you're never going to have that opportunity again. And do it by the book. It exists for a reason. There's a, there's a, a calculation that at this end, it's going to come out this way. Make it happen. Just have the discipline to make it happen. But I think that's where most got caught up. They just didn't know how to, how to get it back on the rails after they conditioned them to essentially not, not follow certain rules and regulations. I could probably talk for another hour asking you questions about being a drill instructor because we all come across them, but nobody really knows what's happening behind the curtain when they're getting trained and stuff like that. And it's really interesting. I'll shift gears a little bit because I want to talk about your time in Afghanistan. And I'm wondering if you can comment on or share some or one of those moments, because there's always there's always those singular moments in some in, in a person's career when they fully realize the gravity of their command or their influence or their responsibility. I'm just wondering if you can share an experience from your time in Afghanistan where you realize that the gravity of your responsibility at at some point. So I can share two quick stories on that one. So like the first one, first time I went to Afghanistan was in 2005, 2006. Basically, Korangal Valley with 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines as a young sergeant. Our platoon got divested to different fobs. As we go over there, you only have five to seven Marines in one location. And now you're responsible for all the logistics for that fob. 
the level of gravity when you're a sergeant of Marines and you have an infantry company there and some change, uh, infantry company reinforced some change with some great leaders, that challenge is great. But in that deployment, uh, unfortunately, I lost, you know, we lost a Marine and it was one of those that kind of fueled the fire. It was right in the beginning of our deployment. It was very hard as a sergeant, you know, to get my Marines to believe. Like just picture there's six of us and you lose one and then they give you two combat replacements, you know, from another five to help you out. Like you get really close. The challenges of, of getting everybody, you know, to get back in the game. I put myself on every single convoy, every single mission after that happened to one of our Marines, hoping, you know, secretly hoping that, that uh, my Marines would be okay. It maybe took a week of going through missions back to back to back until finally two of my Marines came to me and said, Sergeant Vera, we want to get back in the fight. Can you get us back in the fight? That moment of relief, you know, by just going out there and just kind of like paving the road myself, just to let them know that I was still going. That was one of the best moments on that deployment where they were back in the fight, ready to go, but it took a little convincing and it took convincing. We knew that that one road was filled with IEDs. We knew that there was no way around it. It's one way in, one way out. The road mm -hmm. was so thin that your tire, the trail of your tire would hang off the cliff at certain points. And then you, they, we had to re reduce the speed and they would take advantage of that area. They came in and they made my heart so happy for those Marines, you know, those, those few that there were literally like the logistical support team of that FOB. I, I'm truly grateful. And then fast forward, you know, I go through a special duty assignment. I go back to the fleet, you know, we're headquarters battalion, first Marine division, but they have the unique opportunity to send their truck company to deploy with infantry battalions and first Marine division. So I get attached to, you know, some of the best Marines that I got to serve with second battalion, seventh Marines, uh, with some amazing leadership. And I got told by the Sergeant Major from the beginning, everybody's coming back. Don't put them in a position where you lose somebody. In his ways, he's going to hold me accountable. Very colorful way of saying it, but I was, I was like, I will not let anybody down. I will, not, I will bring everybody back. And it was a lot of pressure on that deployment. And I did it like I was running out of time. That's one thing that, that I remember from that deployment. I was a gunny at the time. Gunnies were platoon sergeants for, that, for the truck companies. We would have section leaders that would consist of a staff NCO but most of the time it was a sergeant or a staff NCO or a staff sergeant because we didn't have many staff sergeants. So we get out there. I got that workup and training to include weekends. I belted them up as high as I could get them because I needed them to build confidence in themselves. Most of them, even Lance Corporals were, almost all of them were black belts with the exception of like two. I made them read as many books as possible. And we talked about chapters. I never eased off for them when it came to cleaning weapons after a mission because another mission could pop up at any point. They were so aggressive, I had to hold them back. But I did it like I was running out of time because I knew that after I got back with that deployment, they would no longer give me the opportunity to deploy again. They would make me a company gunny or a, a company first arm. So the, why did I get to that? Well, when I went to the depot the first time, uh, when I went to the MCRD Paris Island, I went as a sergeant selected for staff. Two and a half years as a staff sergeant, all in the depot. Then I got meritoriously promoted to my only rank meritoriously promoted, which was gunnery sergeant. I came back to the fleet as a gunnery sergeant. I would think that that right there kind of kept me from hanging on my rocker or, or in the hammock and just kept that motivation going, even as a gunny. I wasn't the gunny that would show up with a coffee cup and just drinking coffee all day while everybody's turning wrenches. I was there with them. You know, and for those Marines that deployed with me at 2-7, I'm sure that they didn't like me at the time because I was, play, I was applying a lot of pressure. But at the end, when we got back, you know, to include one of my best sergeants that, that I served with in the Korangal Valley when he was a Lance Corporal, and now he's a sergeant when we go to the 
to the Sangin. I will never forget the performance that they had there. And we were a well-oiled machine. The unit that would follow us, great unit, but they definitely got tested in combat. Many Purple Hearts. It just wasn't the same. Maybe it could have been the time difference and everything else, but I would like to think that the Marines had, they were definitely hitting the I believe button. One, because I didn't give them the choice. And two, because, you know, I gave them some examples because I was doing it too, uh, even though it took all of my time. I didn't even, I didn't sleep in a rack in the bunk. I slept in the motor pool because I needed to be ready to go and get them ready. And that was just the mindset. I'll never forget the leadership over there because there was days where I would go to the first sergeant, which is an amazing first sergeant that retired as a sergeant major. You know, I'll throw his name out there. Sergeant Major Joseph Griffin. I definitely appreciate that individual. I spoke to that individual, you know, because there was days where I started journaling on that, that, in that deployment because I thought I wasn't going to come back. But I think that because of my Marines, we came back. I had to get back surgery or surgery on my lower back after that deployment because I literally gave it everything like I was running out of time. So from the first one and the second one, one is a sergeant, one is a gunny. I did, I did something very similar where I put everything out there. Matter of fact, after the first, the, the first one as a sergeant in Afghanistan, I also had to get shoulder surgery. Another thing in common, I didn't even think about surgery after both of them because I, was, I had gone too many times without taking care of it. But I exhausted all efforts, left the battlefield exhausted, but came back with the majority of my people. And, but I had to get them to hit I believe button. But by putting myself in that position, I think that's what helped them out. I think one of the most likely and possibly even one of the most immediate leadership challenges that any young leader, officer or enlisted is going to face, right, with the greatest likelihood is a hazing incident, mm. right? Personal opinion, I think it's probably, it's the most probable thing that's going to happen the fastest in beginning of a corporate career or a lieutenant's career, right? You're going to see it, know about it, hear about it, or something like that. And I can't speak from authority here, but I, I just, I'm not convinced that we've totally purged hazing from the military, but I don't even think we've purged it from the civilian world, like with college fraternities. I just, I think it exists. I'm wondering, you know, what you can share with junior leaders that can help them overcome the struggle of, hey, you know, hazing is old school. This is how we've always done it. Or this is what my seniors did when I was younger. Maybe, you know, as a sergeant major now, do you have some words of wisdom or some guidance or some experience to share to help those leaders step up for probably it's going to be their very first time and say no? Yes, I do. Actually, you know, I, I, and I'll give an example because I said enough was enough as a Lance Corporal. And those individuals end up going to jail anyways because that was part of their stuff that they did. But when I, when I look at it, even now, I'm on with you. Like, I don't believe that it's gone away. I believe it lies dormant. If you don't, as a leader, don't go out there and make sure that you put out the warnings, it's going to come out. It's going to come out mm -hmm. because you're right. They are exper experiencing in college. I mean, I even heard my high school son talk about it in football. And I said, don't, don't play the game. That's not the, you know, I'll pull you out of the team if that's what they're going to do, because it's going to disrupt camaraderie. So one of the briefs that I give on the onboarding, when I see the new joints, I make it a point to actually talk to them myself along with the CEO. And one of them is like prohibited activities. Don't let anybody treat you like this. They treat you with dignity and respect. You went through entry-level training. You earned the title Marine. You went through that type where, of transactional leadership. You spent the time on the quarter deck. You passed the crucible. You earned that Eagle Globe and Anchor. No one will treat you like that because you've learned that there. That's not how the, the fleet functions. And then I also let them know that if I find out you participated in it, we will make sure that you are held accountable. So a double-edged sword because you're right. They do show up and they do feel that they need it to be accepted. 
where I've seen the common trends, you know, because the legal and everything else, it's like where you get invited to drink, you feel like you've made it. And then when you get invited to drink, you're, you're probably underage. You're drinking underage, you're, you know, you're under the age of 21. And then at this point, they're like, hey, I'm going to let everybody know that you've been drinking underage unless, and then fill in the blank. And then they start playing the dumb games. And so I give them that example. I don't care if you did underage drinking. I would rather hold you accountable for that than hold you accountable for the, the participation in hazing. It's hard, but you ha- it, it's dormant. It's never, I don't believe it's ever going to go away because it's, it's in a culture. It, I mean, it's in, it's in my son's high school right now. So I, I tell everybody out there that if you are in that, that end, you know, just, you know, even though it sounds like you may be snitching or something, just, just talk to somebody, report it. Don't let it happen. Don't be a victim of it. It's not going to build you stronger. Participating in it, it you're not going to feel good. Like you're, you're going to have this, this feeling of lack of honor within yourself for participating in it. Just stick to what you know, stand up, talk to somebody. Chances are the higher you go up in level, you're going to run into somebody that does not condone it. You know, if it's a Lance Corporal that's doing it, it's probably just like you, a Lance Corporal. There's somebody seeing you into the corporal, talk to them. If that corporal's doing it, then talk to somebody higher in the food chain. If you're in my unit, come find me. And then we'll go talk to that individual who doesn't know how to lead. And I will educate them. You know, so I put that out there for them. And I encourage those Marines to do the same. I encourage the leadership to do the same thing. Offer them that open door to talk to them about it because it disrupts all camaraderie. It does not make them better. If anything, they will turn their back on you when it comes to combat. They, will, they won't piss on you if you, you run fire. They won't be there to shield you from a bullet. They will look away. If you want a team player, give them something else. Show them a little bit of love. Show them what it looks like to be a big brother and little brother. That's how you do it. Not, not the hazing. I think it's hard too because I'm a product of the early 90s and, and hazing was much... Actually, it was organized hazing, right? So I'm a gold-wing parachutist. Back in the 90s, you would have a battalion formation and the battalion sergeant major and the battalion commander were the first two to punch your wings into your chest and then people lined up behind you and you... I could have never imagined in a million years saying like, no, I'm, I'm not participating in this. I would have been thrown out of the unit. I would have been laughed out of the unit, you know, as an officer, as a lieutenant, senior first lieutenant. And I think there's a lot of peer pressure that goes into it too. So it's hard to say no. It's hard to step in and tell somebody to stop it, but it has to be done. The Marine Corps has done a good job of getting rid of some of this stuff, but it's a hard position to be in. I don't know if you have a thought on that. So I do. I do. Actually, you know, so the time that you came up, that was the culture. I think we've shifted from that. I know we have. I think we've shifted to the point where now people know it's wrong and now they're trying to do it on the low to the point where they're involved in alcohol to try to incriminate the individual before they do what they're going to do. Uh, we used to call it the parasite on 360. And it's basically, if you got to look left and right before you do something, you're about to do something wrong and you probably shouldn't be doing it. If you're doing it in your barracks and you're trying to hide it from everybody and you have like a fire watcher interior guard that you've set up yourself to look out for higher ups, you're probably about to do something wrong. The culture is a little bit different where, you know, back then it might have been accepted to, you know, punch their wings in or, or even, even the rank into the collarbone. Now that they're told it's wrong, now they change. Now they, they've changed their ways. But I think the culture has changed and that's helped us to keep it dormant. Yeah. And I, I remember blood striping corporals, you know, and that, that it was, yeah, I just look back and I think, my God, how are we condoning all of this? We almost laughed at it and it's just, it's so wrong. And I guess that's why I asked the question because I just... I feel like if I had heard somebody encourage me to step in and stop it and not tacitly approve it by just, you know, ignoring it, 
that's one of the things I look back on my career and wish I didn't do anything wrong because that's the way it was back then. But I look back on it now through the lens of how it is today. And I think, gosh, I really wish that I had, I had stepped in and stopped some of the stuff that I saw when I was younger and it gnaws at me, which is why I like to ask that question. Cause I want to give everybody a, an opportunity to encourage everybody else to, to do the right thing there. So I appreciate you doing that. Yes, sir. I love asking this question about, especially now, because I just took a flight back from a long trip. I was out in Alaska and, and was sitting on the plane and I watched the Top Gun 2, you know, Maverick Return, whatever it's called. <laughs> I just love that movie. But I, I love asking the question about Mavericks, you know, because this is what it made me really re-realize was that we have this really funny way of just revering Mavericks, right? You've got like Gunny Highway and you've got, you know, Maverick from the movie and you've got, you know, the great Santini for those of you that are, you know, old enough to remember how great that movie is. And if you've never seen it, you should, but yeah, you know, like, so we revere these Maverick type personalities, right? Like Bull Meacham was a Maverick in that movie and he was revered for it. Gunny Highway, he was a Maverick. He was, he was revered for it. You know, so we make movies out of these fictional characters well, at the same time, in the military, like we're not really tolerant of them in real life. Like, we love them in the movies, but we hate them in reality. And I'm, I'm wondering, you know, over your entire career in the Marine Corps, what have the Mavericks looked like that you've come across? And have you ever had a Maverick, like when you were a gunny or a staff sergeant, did you ever have a Maverick corporal or sergeant where you're like, man, I've, I've got a tiger by the tail here. I need to, I need to figure this out. But it was it, in a good way. They were a maverick. I did. I did. Uh, I actually appreciate those. And then, you know, to, you know, when you think about statistically who you bring into the Marine Corps, you're bringing in those risk takers. You're bringing those that, you know, if given the opportunity and there's a cliff to jump off into the water from a high point, they'll do it. If, if they're skydiving, they'll do it. If they're, if they're doing something inherently dangerous, you know, speeding in their motorcycle or their vehicle, they're going to do it. They en enlisted or commissioned into a service that has risk that has risk. We try to mitigate a risk with like the, the ones that have the training and the, resp the responsibility to mitigate it, but you need them. You need them. You need them to be able to, to have that grit. Sometimes they're a little bit annoying, but sometimes, you know, they're, they're what you need. And actually I employed, I employ them with their capabilities. Example, Afghanistan, I get told we shouldn't take this Marine. He's, you know, he, he's not all there. Like, you know what? I made him my gunner. I made him my vehicle gunner. You know, and we had great communication and till today we still talk, even though now he's no longer in the Marine Corps, he's now in the army. Another two from that same deployment, they were my, my loose ones, wild, a little wild, but you know what? Once I gave him a job, I made him my navigation vehicle. So if they messed up, they're probably going to get blown up. They had a mine roller and everything else. So now the incentive is do the right thing. And, and not only are you keeping yourself safe, but you're keeping everybody behind you safe. And those Mavericks, they in garrison, they were the ones that I had to check up on the weekend. But when they went out there, they just did it right. Sometimes they perform so good in combat and then they get back and they make this excuse. I'm a field Marine. I'm a garrison Marine. And I used to tell them, you got to be a chameleon of your environment. You got to be able to blend in wherever you go. You got to make yourself a hard target. And if you want to go with this team again, you got to be responsible in certain things. But sometimes it's just like it's not in their nature. And sometimes you hold them accountable for certain infractions, but then you get them back on track. Some of the ones that are the most out there. I've really appreciated their personalities and I've, I've definitely appreciated what they brought to the, the game. Maybe they don't stay in forever. Maybe they serve honorably their time. Maybe they get a couple of, of licks on it throughout the, their time. But at the end, if you employ them with their capabilities, don't be surprised. They, 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 can, they can give you something that 
you've never imagined. They, they will surprise you with their efforts. But I, I usually look for the challenge. If you got somebody like that in your, in your unit, send them to me. I can use them. Right. I, I will, I will mm-hmm. maximize their effort. Yeah, it's funny because I, I, sometimes I would shun them and sometimes I would seek them out. <laughs> it's always dependent on the situation. But I love asking that question because I do, I do think that inherently we're all a bunch of professional risk takers. Absolutely. Some take more risk than others. But I always like to end that conversation saying like, I, I don't think it's as much about the possibility of something happening or going wrong. It's always about the probability and good risk takers who tend to be mavericks, right? They look at it and they say, well, that may be possible. I'm good enough to know that it's not probable and I'll take that risk. And then they're successful at it and they're revered for being a maverick, right? Maverick slams on the brakes. The guy flies right by you know, took a risk on something, some maneuver, flew below the hard deck, all the things that Maverick did, right? Ride the motorcycle without a helmet. They surprise you. They surprise you with some out of the box thinking. Yeah, they really do. So, and so did Gunny Highway, by the way. So one of my favorites. We're kind of coming up on the end of our time here, but I want to ask you a question. Like, do you have a wish you did it? You're a Sergeant Major, right? And so how many years do you have it now? 25? So 23, 23 years. 23. Okay. Right. So you still got some time to do something you want to, but if you were to look back on your, I'm just going to pick an arbitrary point let's just say sergeant to staff sergeant. And I know you're kind of on the drill field there. So you have to use your imagination to answer the question a little bit, but is there something that you wish that you could have done if you could have had a parallel life? I'm not asking you to like exchange something, but is there something you've said like, Hey, if there was two, if I had a twin brother, I would have wanted to be doing this. So, you know, I, I often reminisce of my, of my time in the Marine Corps. And I, sometimes I live curiously through others, you know, that I'm, I'm like, you should reenlist, you should do this. You should, you know, give them like, there's these incentives, but just imagine if you can, you know, my family, I would like to think that my family, my family is extremely important to me. If I didn't have my family, I probably wouldn't even be in this country. I'd be doing something super dangerous somewhere else. You know, everybody has a, a path and then you do the best that you can with your path. My family is essentially like my governor when it comes to like taking care of myself and taking care of everything. Uh, but when I look back in time, you know, one of those things that, that Marines like they beat themselves up about is like when meritorious promotion. So I had a, one meritorious promotion, and I could tell you that in that meritorious promotion, it fast, I went so fast in my MOS, and it, you know where I did two and a half years as a staff sergeant, where I normally would have done like five to six, it closed some doors for me. So where you may feel that a door closes for you on a meritorious promotion opportunity, it, another one opens. That just means you could do something else in that same rank. Take the opportunity. So for example, I did a special duty assignment of drill instructor twice. I really wanted to do recruiting. I wanted to do MSG. I wanted to kind of experience the whole Marine Corps, not just one MOS. That's why you know I ended up going the first Sergeant route and doing Sergeant Major, and also for the influence of people you know uh, within the the realm. But if I could go back, I'm not saying that I would jump ship from the meritorious promotion. But if I had the opportunity to be a Staff Sergeant just a little bit longer, other doors would have been open to attend. You know, maybe AMOI duty, maybe MSG, maybe maybe uh, recruiting. Or something else out of the ordinary, a staff uh, degree completion program, uh, congressional affiliate. There's so many different programs out there. Or a lap move to another MOS just to kind of see what that was like. But don't close the door just because you don't get meritoriously promoted. Take advantage of that opportunity and do something else that you that you weren't necessarily going to do. Just try something out. That's something that I would think of. That uh, you know, if I could go back, I definitely appreciate the house that built me, meaning the leadership and everybody else. I don't like if something goes wrong in the core, stop blaming the core. If some, certain people are in the same house, they're going to move in and out. See how you can fix it. See what you can do to provide a solution or move it forward. Don't, don't concentrate on or dwell on the, on the negative issues. 
work on the solution. That's what I would say. And, I, and if I could look back and do some things over, instead of listening to everybody complain about around me, if I knew what topic the session solution was, if I knew what some of these other uh, methods to solve problems were, or, or problem framing, which is one of the great things that I learned from leadership, I would have done it earlier to help along the lines. But now that we have that and we're able to push it this way or other ways, frame that problem, solve it, move forward. Don't focus on the negative. You don't get meritorious promoted. Hey, find out what else you can do, you know, in the Marine Corps. It's your adventure at the end. Take advantage of all your time. Take advantage like, like you're running out of it. Like make sure you do what you want to do. You, you only got one shot to do it. All right, one shot, one adventure in the Marine Corps. Make it happen. Make it, make it to the best of your ability. But just remember, you have that one shot. So take advantage of your time. Okay, so Sergeant Major, as we as we wrap up here, I'm wondering if you can just take the last few minutes here in this in this interview and talk about some of the leadership experiences, maybe challenges, successes, or even just hey, this is just it is what it is as it relates to the MLR and everything that's happening there. Maybe some of the unique leadership challenges that you've seen facing there, and what can the Marines look forward to, and and what are some of the things that you're seeing these Marines learn that are going to percolate out to the rest of the Marine Corps? Thank you for that, Dave. I think I think one of the the great things that I got to experience in the in the MLRs between between third LCT and the third LLB is watching these NCOs grow. If you look at our, our numbers, like you will notice that the maturity level, you have a higher NCO ratio versus the Lance Corporals and below. So you have a lot more mature Marines that are in the ranks. But another challenge that they have is that they are doing multiple MOSs, where the Marine Corps focus you may be hyper focused on on uh, the infantry, this is going across all the MOSs that are within the MLR. So you'll see that they do a lot more. Maybe they have one MOS, but they do a lot more cross-training. So it forces them to, to essentially have that leadership for not just what they know, but what they're learning as well. So there's a challenge there with the transformation. There's frustration, obviously, because we turn a concept into a combat capability. But as it continues to grow, you have believers. You have, the retention rate is pretty high. You have Marines that want to stay within the regiment because they want to see this grow. I think the motivation uh, level, you know, sometimes there's frustration, but the motivational level for the most part is high. Some of the leadership challenges are learning the different MOSs because they may be in charge of them, especially as, as young NCOs, knowing that it may be more peer-to-peer -peer leadership versus getting a junior Marine, meaning like a, if you're a sergeant, you may not get a corporal and below. You may have another sergeant that you have to lead. If you're a corporal, same, same thing applies. It may be a, another corporal, not necessarily another Lance Corporal, because where they're lo looking for Lance Corporals to come in, they're not necessarily getting them. Oh, I'm just a rifleman. You're not a rifleman. You are a rifleman in the third, the Toro Combat Team. You're a specialized team that has a specific mission. You're, you're a lot more mature for a reason, and you got to be able to do X. You got to change their mindset where they feel like they're the lowest on the totem pole they actually are pretty significant. And then they're the first to trailblaze doing this. Those are some challenges with the leadership and understanding them, not necessarily convincing them or manipulating, because I don't want, that kind of sounds negative, but ensuring that they, that they understand that they're appreciated, that there's a lot more work that has to be done. Uh, but the MLR, like, it continues to impress me. As the technology develops, I like to say what my commanding officer currently says, he says paint. And paint means like, essentially you're painting a canvas with the idea you may be surprised that the masterpiece that comes out from these Marines and sailors as they come up with these ideas and they bring them to life. Sometimes the painting could feel like it's pulling in different directions and one thing may, may grasp, the next thing you know, you, you end up turning this into life. But I think we're doing so much of that that, that it's, 
it, it's taken effect and some of those things eventually will become program of record and will enhance the force completely. I've seen things in this unit or these two units that I haven't seen in my whole career, but it's mainly because of the Marines that are hungry to develop it. The outside, out of the box thinking, that young NCO leadership that, is, you know, much appreciated. Some say, oh, old core, new core. I tell you what, like they are so smart today. So smart today. Uh, don't underestimate them. Give them a little bit of leeway and you'll see, you'll see they will surprise you. Yeah, that's great. How about, I'm curious if there's been any leadership challenges with the ranks all rising, the billets rising up to a higher rank. So as I understand it, platoon sergeants are now gunnery sergeants, right? And squad leaders can be staff sergeants. Do, do I have that right? And if I don't, I'm going to edit that out. That, that's correct. That's correct. And you know, where you have where you have squad leaders that are staff sergeants and and in the LCT gunnery sergeants that are platoon sergeants, when it was filled, you know, there there is a a concern that when they go to another unit, one, they're not going to be as tactically proficient. Two, when uh, when they're being evaluated against their peers, you know, let's just say a board, their comments, if they don't reflect they're an experimental unit, their value is not going to be as much as that one that's holding a senior billet. So there are some of those more administrative concerns and also the tactical proficiency concerns. You know, some of those can be fixed with the comments. Some of those can be fixed with the level of training. There are challenges here in Hawaii, but it doesn't necessarily mean it can't be done schools, education, you know, you get the same amount of, you, you get a larger amount of staff NCOs and NCOs that they still got to go to school. So the budget's going to be a you know challenge, uh, but that just means they got to capitalize on the seminars, at, you know, to do the, the career progression. And then they, for their MOS progression, they'll get sent to their resident course since they don't have the career school or advanced school here on the MCBH. But those are some of the challenges. And then the other challenges are like, say you have a squad leader who's a staff sergeant, and then the other squad leader may be a corporal because they're they're short a staff sergeant or even a sergeant. Now, when they're asking for squad leaders up, you got a staff sergeant who his peer is a corporal. Those also become pretty challenging. That can be viewed as where now I'm, I'm just a, a higher paid corporal over here with all this. I'm an 0369 with an 0311 corporal. We're both squad leaders and we're supposed to be doing a very similar mission. Where's the justice in that? So you have some of those growing pains until we fill those billets. But we're also designed to take casualties and keep on moving. So you always have to, you know, work to to know the job above two levels, you know, and you got to be able to take the job of the person who, you know, like if somebody gets hit, like you got to keep on moving, you know. So a great example would be when they go to schools, you take that leadership role seriously. You do it like, you know, like you have the opportunity. This is your last opportunity to do it. And that's just a muscle you could flex before you actually go and do it for real if something bad happens. But there are some challenges. There's some growing, but those were mainly the concerns. Yeah, that's great. Well, that's a great way to wrap up. Thanks a lot so much. Really appreciate time. Sergeant Major Chris Rivera out there in Hawaii doing great things with the MLR. And make sure you tell our mutual friend, Don Reynolds, I said hi and hope he's doing well. And I haven't heard from him in a while, so I know he's probably pretty busy. But yeah, That's my brother from another mother. He's great people. But thank you, Dave. I appreciate this opportunity to talk a little bit about leadership. People like you that take the time to do this. I wish I got more sergeant majors to come on. I'm trying really hard, but you know, it's this is all about making the emerging leaders better. So thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. Sergeant Major Chris Rivera. Yeah, got your funky bus fare.